Welcome, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Renegade Joint Investors Podcast. And I'm your host, Jeremy Burgess, professional real estate investor, permaculture and urban farmer, curmudgeon, skeptic, and Keller Williams agent. And what is Renegade Joint Investors? RDI is a local real estate investment and business group that meets monthly at various locations throughout Metro Detroit. This group is about networking and doing deals. This ain't your grandma's Rhea, folks. No guru bullshit from the front. No smell of stale coffee, bin gay, and or disappointment. You know exactly what I'm talking about. RDI is also this podcast where several times a week we release content just for real estate investors and agents. We got story time with Jeff. We got some stuff coming with Tommy Desmond. We have a read along of The Shift and other books. And of course, we also sit down and interview people. And if you haven't already, and if you enjoy this podcast, help me out. Go on the iTunes, rate and review. Come on, man. Let's help grow this podcast. I know I got to do it every week. I'm not going to sell too hard this week, but if you haven't already, seriously, stop and go do it. If you enjoy the podcast. I know you just don't want to take without giving back. And I know it's a pain in the ass. Or put it in your calendar, right? Say so it takes five minutes, maybe at most. Put it in your calendar, do it. I would greatly appreciate it. Ask your friends who listen to it to do it too. I really appreciate it. Also, a lot of you are sharing. Continue to share. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, go to renegadedetroit.com. If you want to attend any of the local meetings, go to meetup.com forward slash renegade Detroit investors or facebook.com forward slash Detroit investment club. You can hit me up on Twitter and Instagram at Jeremy Burgess. I'm on Snapchat at Jeremy A. Burgess. And as always, go to youtube.com forward slash user forward slash Detroit wholesalers. Legal disclaimer. <clears throat> Don't blame me. In no way, shape, or form should anything that I or my guests say be taken as legal and or investment advice. We highly recommend before you make any investment decision or decisions that you contact a lawyer and or other licensed professionals. Don't be a snowflake. Be an adult. Don't fucking sue me. All right. Time for the Renegade Joint Investor Show Quote of the Week where I pick a quote that sets the tone for the podcast and hopefully your week. And this week we're going with... The game of life is not so much in holding a good hand as playing a poor hand well. H.T. Leslie. The game of life is not so much in holding a good hand as playing a poor hand well. And this week, part five of the shift, we're going to finish reading it. Yay. We're going to be done with this one. And after this one. I have some interesting books in mind. I'm not sure. I was going to go with The Millionaire Real Estate Investor, but there might be something else I want to push right in front of it. I don't know. What do you think? Go ahead and send me an email, jeremy at renegadedetroit.com or PM me on Facebook or something. Let me know what you want me to read. What you want to do is a study along, right? So this week, we're going to finish reading the book. And next week, we're going to do the review where we go back and um, basically all the parts I thought were important for myself that I highlighted, um, and we go through and we review them. And, I, and if you highlighted something different, I recommend you do the same thing. Don't just highlight the things I highlight. We're in different places, right? Maybe you get something and I don't, and vice versa. So anyway, uh, without further ado, let's get into it. You got your book ready? All right, we're going to go ahead and start on the shift, page 223. All right, I'm opening this thing up. And do you have your highlighter ready, you know? I take this shit seriously, you know. Are we ready? Tactic number 11. Master the market of the moment. Short sales, foreclosures, and REOs. Every market brings its own rhythm and its own rhyme. Niches and unique opportunities that show up in one market disappear in another. 
While some market factors remain the same no matter the market, other factors will change in every market. Each shift has its own unique characteristics with possibilities and prospects that are specific to that market. That's good to know. And that's something I noticed too in the downturn is um, there were a ton of investors in this market. And basically my time uh, was switched where right now I spend all my time trying to find sellers and getting them to sign contracts back then. That was a piece of cake. Everybody wanted to sell. They thought the world was coming to an end. Um, I had spent most of my time finding buyers. Anyway, back to the book. The uh, instant these markets of the moment appear, make sure you take notice. Don't hesitate. There is a definite advantage that goes to those who move first. I say this all the time on the wholesale appointments when I'm training my people. When we're trying to call people back as fast as possible. We want to respond in five minutes or less. And the reason is, is it's a whole lot easier to be first instead of be best. If you if you show up second, even if you're better closer and a better investor, a better wholesaler, better at everything, at second, you're already a disadvantage. The vast majority of people go with the first option put in front of them in the wholesale world. Something like 80% pays a lot to be first. Back to the book. The sooner you get involved, the better. Whether you completely dive into these new opportunities or not, they are worth studying and mastering. Lenders want people to borrow money when they buy a home. Responsible lending is good business. Conversely, irresponsible lending is bad business. You would expect the first and not much of the second. But inevitably, we sometimes experience a lot of the second, which can create opportunities. Some people get in over their heads financially, and this is especially true when a shift occurs. Now, done within reason, prudent borrowing is a smart thing to do. But borrowing ahead of one's income can create serious problems. Inevitably, when a market drops, it brings some people down and can even turn a few upside down. A number of people get in a financial bind and then are unable to weather the trying times. In those situations, the individual in trouble will certainly need you now more than ever. But they may be so unaware of the current market conditions as it relates to their own circumstances that they don't realize how much they need your expertise. You are uniquely positioned in a downward shift to help both borrower and lender work out their problems together or separately. These sellers and lenders will need you at all stages during the troubled time. Before foreclosure, during foreclosure, or after foreclosure, you can help both seller and lender. From selling a house that's become a burden to helping plot a path back to creditworthiness to minimizing financial losses, you can provide a variety of services and support that can change lives for individuals, for families, and even for institutions. Tough times for one person usually turn into tough times for many people. A shift can turn the life of a real estate professional on its head. Previous customers as well as current vendor partners are probably experiencing some of the same challenges. Many homeowners will owe more than they can get on the house they can no longer afford to own and face a looming foreclosure. At the same time, many institutions will have foreclosed on homes they can't afford to own and will themselves be facing a fiscal crisis. Because both these sellers, individual and institutional, must sell, home prices can become attractive enough to draw serious interest from bargain hunters and investors. Three distinct markets show up during a shift. Three markets of the moment. Number one, short sales. Individuals or families trying to avoid foreclosure. And that's where, if you're not aware of what a short sale is, that's where a bank agrees to accept less um, on the loan than what is owed by the borrower. So let's say your aunt borrowed $100,000 and then she's, she falls behind. She can't make the payment. But in the meantime, 
home values dropped and now it's only worth 80 and they can only sell it for 80. A short sale is where the lender agrees to accept the short as full. Now, there may be some other kinds of consequences that we're not talking about here, like a 1099 or you have to pay taxes on the difference and blah, blah, blah. Maybe. Anyway, that's what a short sale is. Number two, foreclosures, bargain hunters and investors seeking to buy value. And uh, REOs, financial institutions with an above number of foreclosures to sell. So these are three markets at the moment. And I did all these during the, the crash. It was awesome. Back to the book. In the midst of your own shift-induced financial challenges, these trying times present you with new opportunities to offer much-needed assistance and earn much-needed income in the form of short sales, foreclosures, and REOs. They are now the market of the moment. While there are always a small percentage of homes that go into default or foreclosure, during a shift, distressed properties can flood the market and begin to impact the marketplace. That's why we call this the market of the moment. These homes tend to hit the market abruptly and can grow so numerous as to dominate the overall market, driving down prices even further and thereby creating a second wave of defaults and foreclosures. This downward cycle of foreclosures and falling prices can eventually feed on itself, building momentum until bargain hunters and investors are attracted back into the market. And not in the book. That's exactly what happened. Um, Technically started sometime around 2006, but it was like a tsunami um, sometime between, I think it was August 2007, at least in Detroit. And by January 2008, it was nuts. And this is for the Detroit market. So it was absolutely nuts. Anyway, during that time, it literally went from a few thousand um, properties on the market to, um, I think it was like 35,000 at some point throughout all throughout the entire uh, metro Detroit area which is just an insane number of houses and I think it might have been higher at some point. So I remember going and looking at houses and and never bumping into anybody and never running into anybody. So lots of opportunity. So back to the book. And here we have a little drawing I'm going to attempt to describe to you the market shifts and that shifts to less buyers, more sellers, average and that makes the average home prices fall. And that makes sellers get upside down. And then we see more short sales and defaults, which increases the number of foreclosures, which increases the number of REOs that hit the market, which uh, then it makes the average home prices fall further, which means even more sellers get upside down. So that means even more short sales, more defaults, more foreclosures, and then more REOs hit the market. So The shift presents you with both challenges as well as opportunities. Dealing with homes in default requires you to be organized and persistent. Forms, processes, procedures are required to work from one end of this type of transaction to the other. On the other hand, there are three distinct prospects for business that arise. First, there are many individuals who now need short sale and pre-foreclosure services. If you can help them out, you will earn customers for life and numerous referrals. Second, if you serve the institution's who now own foreclosed properties they need to sell, REOs or real estate owned, you can receive groups of listings at one time and an ongoing stream of potentially well-priced houses to sell. And third, this is one of the most opportune times to provide services to bargain hunters and investors. While working with these buyers requires some special knowledge and skills, they tend to purchase multiple properties both at one time and over time, making them prospective volume customers. Since these three distinct groups of customers, individuals, institutions, and investors show up at different times in the market cycle, I find it helpful to 
to break down the foreclosure process into three stages, default, foreclosure, and REO. Stage one, default. One of the great tragedies of a shift is that when homeowners get behind on their mortgage payments, they're often upside down on the house. They simply can't sell it for the amount of money they still owe on their mortgage loan. That leaves them with few options and in great need of assistance. They will likely need a professional real estate agent to help them sell their home quickly, negotiate a short sale on their behalf, or get the lender to renegotiate the terms of loan. Negotiating a short sale where the lender agrees to accept less than owed on the property is one of the greatest services you can provide to a struggling seller. For many agents, it becomes a personal mission to save as many people as possible from foreclosure. Notices of default are made public soon after the homeowner gets behind on the mortgage payments. How long a lender will allow the owner to not make payments or make only partial payments varies. In general, the deeper you are in a downshifted market, the longer the default period becomes. Local governments post public notices in the newspapers, at the courthouses, or online. There are even companies dedicated to assembling this information and reselling it. Some homeowners attempt to sell their homes themselves to save money on commissions. So in a shifted market, a for sale by owner sign can sometimes be a cry for help. You'll also uncover them in your listing presentations when you ask the critical seller pre-qualification question in a shifted market. Are you current on your mortgage payments? Understand that while all the above are sources for finding owners in distress, they also attract the attention of others. Owners in default can quickly find themselves confronted with a dizzying assault of offers to quote unquote help them. Some are legitimate offers from ethical investors, but there are also illegitimate illegitimate offers made by those who are more predatory predatory in their motivation. The worst stories involve quick claim deeds slipped into the paperwork whereby the owner unintentionally deeds the property over for next to nothing. You have to cut through this noise, get the seller's attention, and differentiate yourself as a fiduciary who can help them and protect them. The good news is that in a shifted market, most lenders are much more willing to discuss potential workouts. Lenders might forgive late payments or roll them into the existing mortgage. They might even negotiate short sales. Lenders are facing a tsunami of foreclosures, which can be quite costly. In April of 2007, the Joint Economic Committee of Congress asserted that the average foreclosure costs a lender approximately 50000 Multiply that times thousands of foreclosures, and you begin to understand their lender's incentive to negotiate. If the homeowner can document hardship and is willing to cooperate, you will have a significant leverage to negotiate a short sale. One last warning. Be sure your seller is for real. Unfortunately, I've seen a lot of agents spend significant time and effort trying to help someone who simply doesn't care enough to help themselves. The seller must be honest with you. If they have other assets they could sell to cover the difference, a short sale is usually no longer an option. Require a current credit report from the seller that shows any other properties they own. Being thorough on the front end will save everyone time throughout the process. By making efficient use of your time, you'll be able to assist more clients. And this is really important. Um, I saw this happen a lot where people were hiding assets. And personally... I don't work with people that do that. I just don't. Um, if they're willing, I know it sounds harsh, but if they're willing to screw other people, how long before they screw you? And there are going to be a lot more people uh, when the next shift occurs who need help, who are honest, who don't want to screw anybody and who want to do the right thing. Um, 
that you don't have to work with them, you know? And they'll tell you the sad story. They'll be the first one to turn on the violin. Oh, I'm so old, you know? Turns out they have retirement account. They have a second house, all sorts of shit, right? They try and deed it into their ex-husbands or whatever. I rant a lot of that stuff, especially in Detroit. If you catch them doing that, bail. Bail. Back to the book. Once you have a qualified cooperative homeowner, working the problems out is a straightforward process. Contact the lender. It can sometimes be a struggle just to figure out who actually holds a note. So be patient and persistent. Most of the time, you'll begin with a company who services a loan before you work your way to the actual lender. They will require a letter of authorization for you to negotiate on the seller's behalf, so have one ready. What to include in the letter of authorization? Number one, a short letter authorizing you to negotiate on the homeowner's behalf. Number two, loan reference number or owner's account number. Number three, the date. Number four, the property address. Number five, owner's full name and signature. Number six, owner's contact information. Number seven, agent's name and contact information. And one of the things that also, this is not in the book, um, which happened during this time was, I think it was about halfway, was it halfway through 2008? Sometime in 2008, they um, started requiring, because I, I wasn't an agent back then. Um, still don't particularly like agents. I know, now I am one. Maybe some self-loathing thing, right? But anyway, uh, they started requiring that short sales be listed. And I think that's probably likely to happen again. So if you don't already have your license, it might be worth um, getting. So anyway, back to the book. Check and double check for accuracy with the high volume of short sales. Lenders will prioritize applications that are neat and complete. Once you've found the actual lender and are authorized to have a conversation, you'll begin negotiations with someone in their loss mitigation department. If your sellers would prefer to rework the loan, forbearance, or refinancing and keep the home, then you will begin that process with the lender. You will need to know all of the documentation they require and the qualifying parameters for their willingness to do this. If a rework of the loan does not seem possible or your sellers do not even want to consider this option, then a short sale is what you need to seek. While the lender will usually not consider approving a short sale until there's a legitimate offer, the loss mitigation officer will supply you with a short sales packet and you'll be able to get down to work. Remember, the clock is ticking towards foreclosure. And that was um, something we're going to be better prepared for. This is not in the book. When this happened last time, short sales, while something they've always done, for whatever reason, weren't, um, it wasn't part of the real estate agent or, or even to a certain extent, the real estate investor world. So um, they'll be better prepared for it this time. But about halfway through it, like sometime into 2007, 2008, some lenders starting having packets, you know, which is good because they gave you a way like, okay, here's what you need to do. The other half, you still had to call and figure it out all by, um, um, hand. So just a little FYI, none of this stuff is particularly difficult to do. It's just boring, but with CRM technology is a lot better. It's a lot easier to remember and follow up. Um, I don't know if you guys know where real flow, that's where real flow came from. That's a CRM. It started as a short sale thing. It's used for lots of things right now. That's like Greg Clements thing. All right, back to the book. While the lender will not usually consider Approving the short sale, there's a legitimate offer. The loss mitigation officer will supply you with a short sales packet and you'll be able to get down to work. Remember, the clock is ticking toward foreclosure. Opening the communication lines can buy you and the homeowner a few months to sell the house or negotiate a workout with the lender. The lender's packet will include instructions and forms for you to document the homeowner's hardship and make your case for a workout. 
The hardship letter and documentation. Number one, letter from owner. Document the financial facts that led to the short sale request. Number two, proof of income and assets. This includes bank statements, pay stubs, disclose and document all assets. And I must insist again, no funny business, especially if you're a licensed agent, man. Do not put your, I don't care if it's your aunt. I don't care. Hey, I don't care if it's your girlfriend, you're fucking her, right? Or boyfriend or vice versa. I don't care how hot he is, how hot she is, who you're trying to help out. If they lie, don't help. Just don't do it. All right. And you're going to run across a lot of that. Move on to the next person. All right. Disclose and document all assets, um, investment accounts, 401ks, IRAs, et cetera, stocks, certificates of deposit, any interest in other real property or business. Um, number three, proof of hardship, bills, unemployment records, death certificates, divorce decrees. Number four, preliminary net sheet. Reflect the sales price you expect to get and any other fees that would be due on sale, including your commission. Include a comparative market analysis uh, with analysis of current actives, uh, pendings, and solds. Lenders can have a heart. They will often be sympathetic with homeowners who face true hardships that make them unable to stay current on payments or sell their home for what money is owed. And we all know, I do anyway, the people who took advantage of this, right? Just you don't have to be that person. You don't have to work with them. Let them go do their own thing. So. It's not worth it, man. They, who knows what's going to happen next time, but they did prosecute a bunch of people. All right, back to the book. It's a lengthy process, so persistence and patience are critical to your success. It may require many contacts, several callbacks, and even long periods on hold. Remember that lenders are probably feeling overloaded and you are probably one of many files. Keep your cool. Patience isn't always easy in the face of bureaucracy. And always be accurate. Verify and double check all your facts. Persistence, a cool head, and credibility are vital to short sale experience. And this is where technology really comes in. Um, 2017 and whoever, whenever the next crash is, um, doesn't matter. With the internet, um, lots of CRM, lots of options, a lot of automated things too. Auto emails, auto text. It's going to be a lot easier the second time around. But, you know. Still got it. You can still, it, I remember having to call some of these lenders 30, 40 times. I mean, it was just, it can be ridiculous. That's what, that's why I'm saying persistence, a cool head and credibility are vital to short sale success, especially in the long run. In the long run. Back to the book. By making a commitment to help individuals through short sales or refer them to trusted agents who do, you will reap long-term goodwill. You could save the bank thousands of dollars and rescue a homeowner from financial catastrophe. Workouts and short sales. A quick review. Seller typically, number one, seller typically must be 60 days behind on payments to qualify. This will move too. At one point, it was four months, I remember, because I did it. Some, it was three, and it may vary by institution. Some that I worked on, um, and eventually I just started, stopped doing them because there's so many REOs, I didn't have to do short sales. And why work your ass off when you don't have to? Just go buy something cheaper. Um, some people, when it was really bad, were like seven, eight months behind and the bank didn't give a shit. You know, they just didn't want to, they didn't want to add another foreclosure to the market. So they're just letting them stay there, keep the place warm, right? Uh, number two, be sure your seller's for real. Ask for a credit report, search for any properties titled in their name. Don't just take their word for it. It's your license, man. It's your reputation. Number three, contact the lender and submit a letter of authorization. 
Who is servicing the loan? This is usually your first stop. Who holds the note? Ask for a representative from the loss mitigation department authorized to negotiate a workout. Number four, document the hardship. Be accurate. Confirm everything in the hardship letter and documentation. Reliability is golden. Provide full and accurate financial disclosure. Submit a preliminary net sheet with a comprehensive market analysis. Number five, negotiate a workout. Ask the lender for forbearance to suspend or roll back slash forgive or add to mortgage or reduce payments. Ask the lender to refinance a note with more favorable terms. Ask for a short sale. If you receive an offer on the home, check it for accuracy and submit it to the lender as a short sale. This is most likely when the lender will share the terms they'll accept on the house. Don't buck the system. Follow the lender's workout systems. Be persistent, patient, and even-tempered. Be available and respond to any communications promptly. Where was this book when I was doing all this shit? This is good advice. I had to learn a lot of this the hard way. <laughs> when, back when the internet was still and dial up was, you know, stage two foreclosure. Once a home goes to foreclosure, your opportunities now shift. Some agents work with investors and homeowners who want to purchase homes at auctions. Others may continue to work with a former seller as the buyer for whom financial assistance arrived too late to prevent foreclosure to repurchase the home at the auction or during the redemption period. Understand that foreclosure auctions are fraught with risk. All properties are sold as is. You must pay with cash or good as cash funds, and you may not have the opportunity to inspect them before purchase. These foreclosed properties could have significant damage or even carry secondary liens. Seasoned investors with available cash are pros at working these auctions. So, they can become very competitive. Just because it's an auction doesn't mean every property is a deal. If you've ever purchased something at an auction, then you'll understand how easy it is to get caught up in the action and overpay. Study the pre-auction list. Do as much due diligence as possible and visit the properties to determine the maximum price you or your buyer will be should be willing to pay. Then don't go over that limit. In good times, foreclosed properties can be synonymous with substandard abandoned properties, but not always. Many years ago, a former neighbor's home, which was in great shape, sold for tax liens on the court steps for 100000 in cash, and at the time, it was easily worth three times that amount. After a shift, the less-than-ideal property dynamic changes radically. Because of the dramatic, uh, dramatically increased volume, foreclosures can begin to reflect the market in general with good and even great value properties showing up in many price ranges. When that happens, more and more non-investors will start asking about foreclosures, which is shorthanded for good deals. Agents who specialize in these properties assemble their own team of foreclosure specialists. These teams include vendor partners to help with tax, title, and mortgage issues, contractors to help with repairs, and property managers to handle the houses for the long term. With a support team in place, they promote foreclosure best investment lists, much like the best buy list we discussed in tactic number nine, creating buyer urgency. This is a way to tap into buyers' desire to get a great deal in a buyer's market. Whether you're actually helping buyers purchase homes at foreclosure or post-foreclosure REOs, you'll need to invest time and energy into understanding the unique challenges these properties can present. Above all else, you'll, you will need to be precise when determining the value of the property what it's worth and what it will take to rehab it and what it will sell for. It is very similar to buy and sell investing or what we call flipping, right? Stage three, REO, 
REOs get their name from a line item and a lender's balance sheet, real estate owned. Um, interestingly, it's listed as a liability rather than an asset, and this makes perfect sense. So lenders are in the business of loaning, not owning. So mortgages, not real property, are the assets they want to hold. With a house unsold at, at auction now marring their balance sheet and costing them money to manage and maintain, lenders have sound financial reasons to liquidate these liabilities and move on. If this happens often, banks become the dominant listing force in a particular neighborhood or even an entire city. And that's exactly what happened to Detroit. It happened in other cities too. It wasn't just Detroit, but it did happen in Detroit. And to a certain extent, some neighborhoods in the suburbs too. Um, back to the book. This presents you with two substantial opportunities to serve as an REO seller representative or become an REO buyer representative. These roles are no long are no different from real estate sales in general, except the seller is a financial institution. It is similar in scope to the procedures for selling absentee owner vacation properties or handling builder and developer listings. The two opportunities of REO. REO seller representative, listing agents who market their services to financial institutions needing to sell REO properties. And number two, REO buyer representative, buyer's agents who market their services to REO seller representatives and handle the buyer leads from these properties. First, you can work with a lender serving as their REO seller representative to list and sell their properties. This can be a volume listing enterprise, literally dozens, if not hundreds of listings. And therefore, it's a big financial opportunity for your business. Be sure you understand that these sellers are looking for two key services from their listing agents, ongoing property preservation and immediate property sales. And that's so true. Um, I don't know if you guys remember all the big REO agents. Uh, Ron Wall, even a guy I had on a podcast, I call him the godfather of real estate, right? Go back and listen to those ones. Um, just search Ron Wall, Raven. you'll see him. Had him on a couple of times. He, he did thousands of deals. Um, Joe Kadaf, there's a bunch, there's a bunch of REO agents, right? And it, they made a shit ton of money, but it wasn't all sexy because the banks made them preserve the property and they made them use their own money. So they'd have to go out and secure these things, change the locks, put lock boxes, winterize them, do clean outs all on their own dime. They'd be reimbursed. Um, but they had to do all this on their own dime and go out there, put their signs out and then you know, then list them and sell them. So he's absolutely right here. That's exactly what happened, at least in Detroit. I mean, I don't know, in Metro Detroit. I don't know everywhere else. Back to the book, making contacts, networking with lender executives, and being persistent are the keys to getting your foot in the on to the REO door. Before you get the opportunity to list a lender's properties, you'll probably be asked to first do a number of other jobs related to preserve, preserving the properties. Vacant properties may attract squatters, vandals, and thieves. So true. Common tasks in working REOs include regaining the house, overseeing an eviction, or cash for keys, um, inspecting the property for damage, changing over utilities, and managing maintenance and repairs. And this is all, this is so true. This is exactly what happened. I keep getting ahead of myself. I keep talking about these things before we get there, and then we get there. So my apologies. I have read this book once, but it's been a while. Back to the book. Whatever your circumstances, be responsive, thorough, and accurate. You are being tested. If you do well, you've earned the right to ask for and receive their listing business. Focus on your relationship with the asset manager, just as you would any high priority seller. Much of your time with them will be checking off on assigned tasks and offering BPOs, broker price opinions 
on the properties. Many agents have told us that by executing property preservation related tasks, they got their foot in the door. Delivering accurate and timely BPOs earned them the listings. In other words, doing BPOs can get you REOs. Almost everything else can be delegated to your administrative team or your trusted service providers. Our interviewer interviews with the top REO agents indicated that one full-time talented assistant with the proper systems can handle the work of about 50 properties. I couldn't. I didn't do that many. I mean, I rehabbed a bunch at once, but not REO. I mean, that's pretty good. They probably have better systems than I did. For sure they did. Uh, Back to the book. The lenders, asset managers often work with hundreds of properties at a time. So the better equipped an agent is to do volume business, the less complicated the asset manager's lives become. That's so good. Are you guys as excited as I am for the next shift? I don't wish bad things upon anyone, but I will be prepared and take advantage of these times, right? I think you should do likewise. That can make you very valuable to them, perhaps irreplaceable. For the asset manager, having just five listing agents for 500 properties is a much better proposition than trying to manage 50 agent relationships on those same properties. The fewer contacts they have to make, the easier their job. They love the concept of single point of contact and are looking for agents with systems and stamina who can be the point person for them. Those agents who have already proven themselves up to the task, possibly because they got into the game before the shift, will likely already be on a lender's go-to list. You'll have to earn the right to be on the go-to list if you want to get the sh- uh, get a share of the business. But don't let this discourage you. During a shift, the volume of REOs can soar, extending beyond the capabilities of the agent specialists already in the game. That's so true. There was like one wave of... Um, I can't remember all their names, but there was one wave of REO listing agents. And then, but that was like 2007, six, seven. And then like halfway through eight, there was a second wave just cause there were so many, right? Um, back to the book, the moment an existing agent's performance and work standards falter, the lender staff will be looking for someone else. This natural selection process can create opportunities for you and your business. Be ready to step in and deliver you'll likely get one chance to show them how good you are. The second opportunity REOs present for you is in servicing the buyers these listings can generate to serve as an REO buyer representative. Interestingly, most agents who focus on listing REOs tend to be specialists. They rarely build teams to effectively service the buyer side and instead tend to refer those leads out. In some cases, they are not even doing much to respond, to capture or convert those leads. There will be a lot of lost leads being generated around successful REO listing business. If you can bring a high degree of service and follow through to the buyer side, you have a chance to win this business. Remember, REO agents earn their reputation by getting the property sold. If you help them do that, you then become a very valuable and respected part of their business. Our research shows that some offices organize teams of designated REO buyers agents to service leads generated by REOs and provide leverage for the REO listing specialists. This is a win-win scenario. The moment of truth. A market shift can be a moment of truth for your career. You'll be faced with the decision to go after homes in default, foreclosure, and REOs or not. All three areas can be as challenging as they are rewarding, and focusing on the market of the moment shouldn't be a spur-of-the-moment decision. It has been said that luck is when preparation meets opportunity. I agree with that sentiment. 
Fortune usually favors prepared. And I agree. That's why we're reading this book, The Shift, right now, right? I was not prepared the first time around. And also, it's about being prepared to take advantage of that opportunity. This becomes obvious when some agents decide to take on a specialized area of real estate. For instance, I have seen residential agents become enamored by the potential commissions of huge commercial transactions. Although they acknowledge it is a complex transaction, all they're seeing is a big commission. After weeks or months of work, if it falls through or they make a mistake and lose their uh, place in the deal, they're usually devastated. I have a lot of empathy for them, but not so much sympathy. They made the mistake of thinking they could play in a game they haven't trained for. They essentially made light of the demand of the business. At the professional level, almost no one can play to pay without putting in time, study, and work it takes to master the game. And that's so true, right? How many people have you, I mean, I've done it, right? I think we've all done it to a certain extent, but how many people you know constantly do that and constantly lose, right? And there's a reason why. Especially the complex business games that have guidelines, rules, and very experienced players. Short sales, foreclosures, and REOs are this kind of a game. They are successfully played by experienced real estate professionals. Lending institutions can tell if an agent understands renegotiating a loan, negotiating a short sale, or taking an REO listing and won't give you much time if they don't think you know what you're doing. Agents who naively believe these transactions are easily profitable and require a minimum of preparation find themselves waiting on hold or embarrassed by their inability to answer questions they are asked by their colleagues. Just as we see people who are able, ready, and willing to do business, so do short, uh, so do short sale sellers and REO lenders. That trio of qualifying words falls on any real estate agent who desires to participate in the market of the moment. Don't just be ready because you see the opportunity. Don't just be willing to take the risk because you think you have nothing to lose. Seek the business because you've studied it, learned it, and can successfully do the work. Seek the business because you're able. As he's talking about being intentional, right? Plan. It's like, um, you know, it's, it's a bad example, but I'll do it. You know, you want to build the ark before the rain, right? I think that's what he's saying right there. If you start building once it's raining, you're not likely to succeed. Um, anyway, so before you put too much time and effort toward pursuing these opportunities, before you, you take time and effort away from lead generation and uh, conversion of traditional real estate sales, be sure you know what you're doing. Take the courses, read the books, and talk with those who are experts in the business. Once you have the knowledge and know the realities of the short sale, foreclosure, and REO business opportunities will abound. By being prepared, luck will now be on your side. So on your mark, get able, get ready, get willing, and go. Go get the market of the moment. Tactic number 12, bulletproof the transaction issues and solutions. And there's a little quote here. If I had eight hours to chop down a tree, I'd spend six sharpening my axe. Shifts can be maddening. Just when everything seems to be going right, something goes wrong. Typical transactions are now atypical. Anything settled can quickly become unsettled. With more unusual than usual, the expected and unexpected frequently turn up together. It just feels like the only thing you can count on is not counting on anything. Nothing works like it once did. Nothing goes like it used to. Real estate transactions aren't particularly trouble-free in any market, but when the shift happens, few sales are easy and almost all closings are a challenge. And this is so true, dude. And dudettes. 
title issues, um, especially with REO, right? Um, all sorts of, all sorts of, issues. I, had, I had a bunch of REO people that had to bring mine to the table and nobody gave them a net sheet, you know? So we get all, we got all the way to the closing and the day before they go, Oh, we're going to, we're not going to bring $5,000 to the table deal done. They just give you back your EMD. They literally don't give a shit about the due diligence you have into it or any of the work or effort you put into it. If you had it inspected, anything like that, um, just be prepared for that. It happens a lot. Back to the book. It's a strenuous and trying time that requires all the attention and effort you can command. You truly work for every sale and a successful close. What makes this market especially tough is the apparent willingness of buyers to walk away at any point in the sale. And, and I would say on the other side, too. I was a buyer. And institutional lenders especially felt that way. Like they didn't care what you had invested into it, time, effort, money. That's why at one point we were just making a couple hundred blind offers a week. We would only go look at properties that got accepted. And then only from that point on, um, work with properties we liked. That's one of the reasons why. Numbers game. We just expected a bunch of them to fall out, planned accordingly, right? When everyone believes the market is headed up, buyers are afraid of missing out. When everyone believes the market is heading down, buyers are afraid of sinking with the ship. Yeah. That's something we talked about earlier, like over time, right? Previously, but everybody misses out. Now, I did it when this was happening, right? Because I was young, dumb, full of cum, and stupid, and arrogant, and all these other dumb things, right, that got me in trouble. Um, on a long enough timeline, these ups and downs go away, and it's just a general trend up. But when you shorten your timeline to a few years or a few months, small dips can appear... You know, kind of like that thing in the mirror where it says objects in the mirror close and they appear, right? It's not exactly what's happening, but in the moment it feels like it's happening. I did this too. Both markets are driven by the fear of making a mistake, but while one drives buyers to hold deals together at almost any cost, the other drives buyers to allow deals to fall apart for almost any reason. It can almost seem like buyers are actually seeking a way to undo the deal. In a shift, this often makes closing any sale demanding and difficult. Reluctance and concern usually don't go away just because a contract is signed. When the market shifts, buyer concerns often linger to some degree all the way to closing and possibly for months afterwards. Buyers are simply more open to any opportunity to rethink, renegotiate, or even break their contract. As they listen to the media, fellow coworkers, friends, and family, buyers are likely to question their own judgment. That shit is so true. Breach. Image deals. I lost either it's on the seller or the buy side because they talk to their fucking neighbor who has never bought a, or sold a house before or even worse saw an article and then change their mind happens all the time this way you just just feel fill your your lead line just fill so many deals that it doesn't matter if they fall out Back to the book. Then they begin to look for any crack in the contract or opening in the process to walk away. Many start to wonder if there's a better buy elsewhere or if there is still a way to make their buy a better deal. And to complicate things further, if there isn't an obvious and natural route to unravel the sale, some might create an exit strategy. In other words, no sale is safe until it's sealed at closing with everyone's signatures. And I did some things I won't do again during this time. There's one particular time, it's about six months, and it worked very well, I might add, but um, it's obviously not the greatest way to build relationships. It was two days before closing, we would call and ask for a price reduction. Now, we would still close if they said no, but we implied that we wouldn't, 
right? This is back with the old urban wholesaler state. Anyway, I would not do that again. I think that's a shitty business move. I don't think it's um, a particularly, particularly honest way to negotiate, and I don't want to do that, but it worked, and it happened a lot, and expect to see it when you're on the other end, right? Bulletproof the transaction. Um, and also, I didn't like when it was done to me, so that's why I stopped doing it, right? Remember I said I was young, dumb, full of cum? That's why. All right. Bulletproof the transaction. I remember when I really learned my lesson about getting contracts to close. It was my first year in the business. After selling six homes and closing five of them my very first month, I then went five straight months with no closings at all. I made sales during that period, in fact, at least two a month, but none of them closed. The market had shifted down and my selling skills hadn't scaled up. That's so, it's such a good way to put it, right? Because you need additional skills and tools. The market had shifted down and my selling skills hadn't scaled up. I had assumed that all buyers and sellers truly needed was an honest real estate agent with integrity who was willing to provide them the absolute best services possible. And I was absolutely right. I just overlooked one important detail. They also need a salesperson. I'm going to highlight all that actually. This is one of the biggest ahas of my young career. I realized with total clarity that I not only had to master the transaction, but also the sales skills that went with a successful transaction. I understood one, but not the other, and found myself in a shift without the necessary skills to pull me through. So I backed up, thought through the transaction, decided how I handle each key point where something might go wrong. I got clear on what might happen and how to handle it and began to see ways to anticipate problems and head them off in advance. I wasn't going to get caught unprepared again and let my buyers and sellers down. In fact, I was going to be overprepared and ready for anything. And things changed. Those events that were previously unforeseen, I learned to see coming and to handle them. Those people I assumed were getting the job done now had me checking on them. I learned that any transaction that can come together can also come apart. I learned to bulletproof the transaction. I believe this is when I actually became a true professional and real estate salesperson. I was now using lead generation skills for my career and selling skills for my customers while being. As a result, not only did my year change, but my career changed forever. In that, seven, in that seventh month, I started keeping deals together, finished with a, fl- a flurry, and before my 12th month had hit all my first year financial goals. I rewarded myself with some well-earned time off. Heads up. As determined as I was to succeed, the string of disappointments taught me the serious financial and emotional costs that I and my customers would pay when deals fall, fell through. I also learned that no one else is going to do your due diligence for you. It's entirely up to you to oversee your contracts from start to finish. You have to be good at both ends of the sale, making it and closing it. The key is to remember that simple truth. You do your deals heads down, but you save your deals heads up. That's so good. And there is an enormous amount of disappointment. It's true. You have deals fall through. You you invest money and time in them, and it happened all the time. Or somebody in Detroit, too, um, let's say the deal didn't even go wrong, but you go do the walkthrough the morning of, and in the meantime, and the, the week or two it took you to get to the closing table, somebody's broken in, stole shit, and now you have to renegotiate the deal and maybe a lot of times it kills the deal, but you've already invested money, time and energy into it, right? Get used to that and put that into your business plan. There were one t- point in time when we were rehabbing, we just, the theft problem became so great. 
we just assumed we were going to, like, we put a number to it. We literally put a number. We added um, $2,000 to every rehab because we just assumed that a certain percentage of our houses were going to get hit because they did. We figured out that number, which is about 70, 80%, if I remember correctly. And we just adjusted it and made it part of our plan. Do likewise. Heads up is about seeing what's coming. It's about being vigilant and prepared to act. In my experience, there are four ways you can think about what might happen in any professional endeavor. Nothing will go wrong. Anything could go wrong. Something will go wrong or everything will go wrong. This is just good. I like this chapter. I assume everything will go wrong. I prepare for the worst and plan for the best. Interestingly enough, it's not about whether any of these approaches are right or wrong, nor is it about predicting the future. It's about being prepared to deal with whatever the future might bring. Many agents like me in my first few months who naively think nothing will go wrong are very surprised and often disappointed when something does, and they usually aren't ready to deal with it quickly. So for them, what goes wrong usually stops the sale from closing. Those who understand that anything could go wrong or even that something will go wrong are better prepared to handle unpleasant surprises. But because of this approach, they may not be able to take care of them. Sometimes things work out okay, and sometimes they don't. Over time, they will learn from experience, but along the way, they will still have a fair amount of sales that don't close. In my experience, it is best to prepare as if everything will go wrong. See, we're on the same page. I know this sounds pessimistic, but it really isn't. It's preparedness, man. you got to be prepared. It's the eagle scout in me. I like to be prepared. It's the way to be sure that you'll be ready to deal with whatever happens. You'll be positioned not only uh, respond effectively to things when, uh, when and if they go wrong, but you will stand a great chance of preventing them from happening in the first place. My co-authors Dave and Jay often comment that I am the most black-headed optimist they know. What they mean is I believe anything is possible in any direction. I strive for the possible. I go after what I want to have happen, but I prepare for the worst and I'm ready should things go wrong. I don't know that they will go wrong, but I'm prepared if they do. It's why I have insurance. It's why I bulletproof transactions. Problems may or may not come at any particular time, but over time they will come. They just do. In a shift, they come more often than not. That was a trying time too. I was not prepared. (laughs) So when it comes to bulletproofing the transaction, take the everything will go wrong approach and keep your head up. Remember, you can predict exactly what uh, you can predict exactly what can happen, but you can't predict when it might happen. Assume everything will go wrong and come up with ways to possibly prevent them from happening or effectively deal with them when they do. You won't be surprised when the problems show up and uh, you won't be surprised when they go away. So. This is kind of like when you're on the phone, you're overcoming objections. This is like a similar thing, right? All right, what are we going to do if um, the day of the walkthrough, somebody broke into the property and still things? What's our procedure for that? Um, okay, what are we going to do if title doesn't come back clean? Um, what are we going to do if um, these deals don't get accepted, right? Uh, what are we going to do if the buyer backs out? What are we going to do if the inspector kills a deal? You, you get what they're going. The six issues. Bulletproofing transactions begins with fully understanding where things can go wrong. There are six major issues in getting from contract to close. These are the moments of truth that put transactions at the greatest risk. Knowing these is critical 
but also knowing the certain ways in which they can go wrong is equally critical. Above all others, you are the person most responsible for getting a sale to a successful closing. Think of yourself not only as the one who makes the sale, but also the one who makes sure it closes. To do this, you must be aware of, ready to handle, and better yet, prevent any and all mishaps that might arise. We got a little chart here. The six bulletproofing the transaction issues and solutions. Number one, inspections and repairs. How things go wrong, unexpected findings, report complexity, costs and who pays, timetable for repairs, doubt about worthiness. Solutions, seller gets pre-inspection. Um, attend with buyer and or seller. Pre-negotiate, uh, pre-negotiated limits, select and supervise vendors, prepare and reassure buyer. Number two, appraisals, won't support the price, won't support the loan, doesn't match the CMA. Provide appraiser with research, find additional buyer's funds, uh, appeal the appraisal. And actually, I got to say, I don't think we can do that anymore. Or I think we have to be careful how we do that with the Consumer Financial Protection Board. Go back and listen to the Alan Daniels bit with, um, I think they might consider that trying to influence the appraiser now. I'm not sure. Just, just realize that that's not as simple as it once was and be careful. All right. Number three, loan approval and funding. Um, application delays, documentation problems, buyer credit issues, lender failure to approve, lender failure to fund, buyer credit changes, solutions, select originator, get pre-approval, uh, assist buyer with paperwork, get credit counseling for buyer, uh, reapply with corrections, parallel applications, give pre-closing credit warning. Number four, other contingencies. Sale of the buyer's house, third-party approvals, estate, relocation, short sale approvals, clouded title. Solutions, take backup offers, know who and communicate. Uh, know who, how, and timetable, preliminary title search. Number five, co-opt agent. Bad ad- and how things go wrong, bad advice or communications, and attention to detail, poor vendor selection. Solutions. Clarify the messages and intentions, own the process to communicate, provide selection list and backup. Number six, deadlines, inspections and repairs. Closing date, occupancy, approvals and documentation. That's how things can go wrong. And solutions, confirm appointments and progress, build in buyer and seller flexibility, preset dates, limits and penalties, manage the closing checklist. This is actually a damn fine list, man. I would add a few things, but they might be Detroit-centric. I don't know. I don't think this is just all of them, right? Getting sales to close in a shift is not always about the technical details, although being knowledgeable about them is important. It's really about what you do when issues arise. How soon you respond, how well you handle things, and how well you work with everyone involved, and ultimately both parties' willingness to close play the most significant roles in the final outcome. And that's so true, too, right? I had deals that didn't close just because um, nobody would answer the phone. Literally, nobody would answer the phone. And I've had buyers walk away, um, even from earnest money deposits. I had one guy walk away from $5,000 in earnest money. That's how terrified he was when he found a better deal, supposedly, allegedly, right? Think about that. Willing to walk away from five grand. He was that worried about it. $45,000 house. Anyway. 
You might want to add that to the list. Get higher EMDs, make it harder for them to walk away. Ooh, that's what I did. Although it doesn't work always. That guy walked away. Back to the book. So often a seller and an upshift or the buyer and a downshift will use one of the technical issues like the inspection, the loan application, or third-party approval as reasons to get out of the sale. So underneath these specific six issues, the emotions and decision-making of all the parties are in play. Be aware of these undertones during the closing process. Later, we will talk about two strategies for handling these hidden dynamics. For now, let's be clear about the six basic issues. Dealing with them effectively is a must, particularly in the turbulence of a shifting market. Number one, inspections and repairs. Inspections and repair negotiations are a standard contingency in literally all real estate sales contracts. The buyer's final acceptance of the contract is normally contingent on a satisfactory inspection and an agreed-upon handling of any repairs. Recommend as short a timetable as possible for a property inspection to be done and for the repairs, if any, to be agreed upon and completed. Don't let this drag out for time is always of the essence and you want things to keep moving forward and everyone preparing for closing. And actually something I say all the time that I stole from someone else, I think it was Robert Ringer. Um, the longer it takes to get a deal done, the less likely the deal is to close. It's number one rule. I don't know if it's just in real estate, I just think in business. So that's what he's saying here. It is always wise to put repair limits or allowances in a contract. This will help keep any further repair negotiations within potentially workable boundaries and be sure to attend the inspection, preferably with your seller or buyer. This will put you in the best position right up front to take the complexity and technical jargon out of the inspection report and make sure all parties get to ask their questions and receive straight answers from the inspector. For sellers, if they've passed on doing any upfront repairs, um, attending the inspection could help them see the wisdom of doing any necessary repairs. For the buyers, attending the inspection will give them a first-hand look at which repairs are really necessary and quickly get an idea of the costs involved. Help the buyer understand whether the items identified raise serious doubts about the structural integrity of the home. If they do, you must have a serious discussion about moving ahead or not with the purchase. While your focus is always on saving a sale, it is never at the expense of the right fiduciary service. Finally, make sure the tone at the inspection is is assumptive towards closing and supportive regarding the purchase. Inspectors can either pave the way to closing or throw up huge roadblocks simply by the language they use. Anticipate this and visit with an inspector in advance to make sure you're both on the same page. And I literally just did that for a client. So we've been looking for a home in the Boston Edison, and we finally found one that did need significant work. But they just had a huge price drop. It was well below market value. We went and took a look at it, and yeah, it needed a shit ton of work. And we kind of, we went through and we just documented it, right? I'm like, okay, what are homes worth? What work do we think it needs to be done? Let's price it out. Is there anything we're missing? Okay, it's a pretty big rehab. Uh, you know, let's say it's a medium-sized rehab. You really feel comfortable doing a medium-sized rehab? And we just had the conversation with my buyer. I'm like, how, how do you feel about this? Because I think there's good value, but obviously there's risk in a rehab like this, right? And we just talked it through. He's like, you know what? Um. I, I feel like I can do this. It's nothing too scary. It won't take that much to get it livable. I can do the rest over time. Let's get the inspector. So we get the inspector to do it. I show up early, which is good because, of course, the lockbox isn't there, all that other shit. Get the lockbox there. He's doing it. I had 20 minutes before the buyer showed up to talk to the inspector. So I'm like, hey, look, 
here are the things my buyer is worried about. He's aware it needs a ton of work. Um, he's aware of all the problems. And here's the problems we see. What we're concerned about are the problems we don't see. We're not inspectors. Um, we think this might be X, Y, and Z, but we need you to check. If it's a foundation problem, we need to know. There are some deal killers here. And here are the deal killers. If you find if it's a foundation problem, we want to know and we want to back out. Right? Otherwise, here's here's what we think is wrong. Um, if we're wrong about this, we need to know. And I just took the time to explain this as an investment. Yes, we're aware it needs a lot of work. Um, yes, we're aware of what needs to do. We need you to find the things we don't know about. We need you to double check our work. We need you to make sure that our work is right. And that's what happened. And it went smoothly. Um, now, if you walked in thinking it was a homeowner, they're going to live there for it. You know, so just take the time to do that. Anyway, back to the book. I know I got a little long-winded there. Sellers should be prepared that any buyer will most likely ask for some repairs to be done. Consider asking the seller to have their house pre-inspected so they can be forewarned of any issues and head them off before they cause problems. That's a good idea. I've never thought about asking the seller to do that. Hmm. I'm going to go ahead and highlight that. So I'm preparing for the next time. Hope you are too. Nevertheless, having reduced their price, possibly made some repairs in advance, and probably made other concessions, sellers may not feel completely comfortable negotiating additional repairs. They must be mindful of the market situation they're in and carefully weigh the potential costs against the potential benefits. It could well be worth the money to not lose the sale. On the other hand, buyers should be careful not to ask for too much. Even though in a down market they usually feel in control and in a mood to ask for whatever they want, they need to be reminded that excessiveness could alienate the seller. And that just might lose them this home, which is hopefully what they really want. Always have pre-selected service providers available that can handle any required repairs in a timely, dependable, and cost-effective manner. This might be one contractor who can oversee all repairs or a list of subcontractors who specialize. Some sellers or buyers may choose to select their own professionals to do the work, but most will prefer your reference advice. In fact, the National Association of Realtors' annual survey of home buyers and sellers regularly show that both buyers and sellers expect you to provide them this information and guidance. Vendor selection is crucial for the right ones can ensure that things will go smoothly as possible. When mistakes are made or errors do occur, the best service providers get them solved quickly and satisfactorily. Your assistance in selecting these parties to the and selecting these parties to the transaction increases the chances that nothing will go wrong, and if it does, it will be immediately taken care of. Unknown or untested repair services can put any closing in peril. Number two, appraisals. In a rapidly shifting market, a house that appraises for the sales price today could, in fact, have all the equity sucked out of it before the first payment is made. So, just as you advise sellers to price ahead of a shifted market. To get the home sold, lenders are also trying to reasonably anticipate the market to manage risk for their investors. This means appraisers are usually under increased pressure from the lender to be sure that the home is not overpriced. And a shift, fewer homes will appraise than those that do require more attention and research from professionals in the transaction. This happens all the time. When this was happening, appraisals came back short all the time. Things we did... um, Appraisal guarantees, you know, like, okay, if it comes in short, are you going to pay the difference? That kind of stuff. Um, back to the book. The best way you can help the process is to offer to provide your research to the appraiser. And be careful about that from before. Consumer Financial Protection Board, the Elizabeth Warrens of the world, and to let you know how you came 
to the professional conclusion about why the home was worth what your buyer offered. The the appraisal process is, of course, intended to be very independent of you or the needs of your client. However, your detailed research can help them justify an appraisal that meets the sales price, while one done with less data would not. Even if you are representing the seller, you may want to update your own CMA of the property and provide the data to the appraiser. If there are special circumstances involved in the sale, seller contributions to closing, seller seconds, or the inclusion of personal property, the appraisal the appraiser may take this into account when determining the market value of the property. There's another area where mortgage company selection can make a difference. Some lenders allow you to contact the appraiser directly, while others don't. Everything else being relatively equal, you would prefer to work with a lender who allows access to the appraiser. When you know the lender and mortgage processor can make a big difference in how your CMA data is used and how responsive they are to the appeal of the actual appraisal. To really protect the transaction, you may want to prepare a backup plan if the house doesn't appraise for the sales price or loan amount. You can guide the buyer into finding funds to use for an additional down payment that will get the loan-to-value ratio in to a place that is acceptable to the lender, giving the reduced appraisal of market value. Or if you present, if you represent the seller, you can have them ready to make a contribution to closing costs or provide a seller second. In any case, it becomes very important to crack to track the loan application appraisal and approval process and know what is happening every step of the way. And one of the questions I like to ask is, um, how would you feel about this property if it was gone tomorrow and you could never buy it? I would hate that. Okay. All right. So what are we going to do if uh, this property doesn't appraise? It's very likely to not appraise. You have a backup plan. Are we just going to walk away or like trying to get ahead of it? Right. And also letting them know what they call it, inoculation. This is a sales technique, right? Where you are anticipating problems and inoculating them before the problem happens. So they know what to do when it happens. What can you do there? All right. Back to the book. Number three, loan approval and funding. Encourage buyers to apply for a loan before they find a prospective home. It's simple logic. The moment they decide to buy is the moment they should submit an application to get to you a great loan officer and lender. It's also the safest strategy to ensure they're pre-approved and that you make uh, a qualified offer on their behalf. Um, Don't do any offers without this, man. I don't even show them houses without this or cash. Back to the book. Often buyers make the mistake of believing they must have a specific home in mind first. That's just not true. Sorry, I'm going to highlight this. That's counterproductive. Counter successful thinking. Moving through the loan application process early is the most productive and most successful. Pre-approved buyers that are qualified for a certain loan amount subject only to finding a property are the ones who can move the most quickly. And knowing in advance how much they can afford These buyers don't run the risk of finding the perfect home only to discover it lies beyond their financial reach off book. That's how you convince them to do it, right? Hey, look, I know um, you're not pre-approved and you don't want to worry about it, but what if we go out, find the perfect property and then we submit and turns out you're not ready. And there's a few things we needed to do and you miss out on that opportunity. How do you feel then? You know what? Let's just get prepared. Go get pre-approved. That way we know what we're dealing with and we can move forward. And if there's any issues, we can tackle it then. Boom, now you just got them to agree to do it, right? Back to the book. So make this happen. Plus, any gift letters, contributions to closing costs, or co-signers can already be in place. These elements are paramount in a shift. Remember, if you're not out in front of this process, the buyer is already behind before ever getting started, and the transaction is already at risk. More than with any other vendor in the transaction, selecting the mortgage provider is critical. 
It begins with knowing who is good and who has a proven record of performance. And better yet, if that proven performance has been with you, then you must assert yourself to be sure that they are chosen. If you're working with the buyer, explain the benefits of working with these known professionals. If they insist on using another mortgage company, get their agreement to run a parallel application. It's a move that won't cost them anything and could save them everything. We do this all the time. Hey, it sounds like you have a, a great lender um, and it's going to work out great. But um, we always like to have multiple options. We like to be prepared no matter what. And one of our promises is to get ahead of things before they happen. So how about this? We'll go. We'll use yours too, but we'll just go ahead and apply with this one as well. And we'll have more options. And that way, if something goes wrong, we're better prepared to handle it. What are going to say that? No, I don't want to be prepared. There you go. Back to the book. Uh, most experienced loan officers, particularly those who have worked with you, will be glad to do this for no upfront fee and will only charge if they end up originating the loan. You don't want to get to the closing and discover that the lender your buyer selected has not approved the loan, failed to fund the loan, or gone out of business. In a few cases we've seen with discount lenders, there's even been failure to fund after closing. Don't let this happen to you. Work with your proven professional partners, and if they can't be first in line to handle business, make sure they're ready to jump in a moment's notice. That's exactly what I was saying there. See, I keep getting impatient, don't I? I just need to keep reading. Shut the fuck up and let Gary tell us. And then uh, I won't be repeating myself, will I? Even if you represent the seller, you want to be assured that the buyer's lender can and will perform. You may insist on a pre-approval letter or that they apply for their mortgage with a loan officer that meets with your approval. In the end, you may even ask that they also run a parallel application with someone you know and trust. Same thing here. So, by the way, this happened all the time during the crash. You go to the MLS multiple listing service where all the realtors, realtors list all their stuff and you read through. And it's a pre-approval through uh, seller's lender only. Like, they didn't even give a shit. Like, we're not, no, we're only going to work with this lender. I don't think you can do that anymore, but expect to be pushed that way. Um, that's because they don't want deals to die, right? Um, in the end, you may even ask that they also run a parallel application with someone you know and trust. Remember, it is even more catastrophic to the seller when a transaction falls out just before closing. They have had the home off the market. They may have purchased another home or even moved. Substantial, non-refundable earnest money deposits can also reduce the likelihood of a buyer walking away from the purchase contract. Talked about that earlier, didn't we? I used to ask for 500, then it went 1,000, and then depending on the person, um, went up to 5,000. If you represent the seller and are providing a major concession to the buyer, you may want to treat it like an option they only receive if they back it up with some additional non-refundable money. I like that. So what they're saying here is they're asking for like 3,000 additional dollars in repairs. Hey, sure, I would love to make those repairs. Um, tell you what, why don't you increase your earnest money deposit by $3,000. It'll sit in that account. I'll do the repairs. Um, but, um, I only do the repairs if you put up more money. Cause what I don't want to do, um, Mr. Byers is do the repairs and you walk away. Fair enough. Back to the book in the mortgage funding process. There is one final place. The buyer can inadvertently stumble failing to keep their credit in good standing throughout the closing. Oh, through the closing in the excitement of purchasing their new home and with the additional things they know they will need to purchase new furniture, drapes, artwork, lawn care, equipment, etc. They may prematurely make financial moves to impact the final credit check by the lender. They are usually shocked to find out that they no longer qualify for the loan. As their agent, you need to warn them of this and remind them what they shouldn't do. You may even want to give them the seven do's and don'ts of mortgage funding. 
And yes, this happens all the time. The seven do's and don'ts of mortgage funding. Number one, don't change your employment status. Number two, don't make any major purchases. Cars, that happens all the time, cars. Furniture, home theater, vacations, etc. Number three, don't increase your credit card debt or miss any payments. Number four, don't change bank accounts or make undisclosed large deposits. Number five, don't apply for a credit card, co-sign a loan, or make a credit inquiry. Number six, don't spend money you have set aside for closing. Not any, not ever. Number seven, don't delay in providing all paperwork asked for by the mortgage company. This is excellent advice. I'm highlighting all this. As you communicate with your buyer, be sure to check that there's nothing happening personally or financially that might put their closing at risk. It is too common for them upon being approved for a loan to think that relatively smaller financial issues won't matter. They need to be very wary of doing anything that would raise a question with their lender. While there are numerous ways a transaction can unravel during loan approval and funding, every one of these issues can be anticipated or avoided by a proactive agent working with a motivated buyer and seller. You can absolutely keep everyone and everything moving forward towards a successful closing. Just maintain close communication with all parties and above all, keep your head up. Number four, other contingencies. Arguably, any agent's two favorite words are all cash. Transactions with no or fewer contingencies, all cash, as is, and not dependent on another house to sell, a house to selling, tend to be our easiest and our most reliable. In reality, these types of transactions are few and far between no matter the market conditions, but the goal is to have as few contingencies as possible with a short timetables for clearing them. This is why you recommend pre-approved buyers and pre-inspected properties. And a buyer's market is also wise for the buyers to get their house sold or at least under contract before they make an offer to purchase their next home. It puts them in a stronger position to make an offer that is attractive to the sellers. The seller assumes a lot of risk when they take their house off the market by entering into contract that is contingent upon the buyer selling their home, especially when homes are not selling quickly. Um, yeah. If they do, you will likely recommend that the seller continue to market the home and accept backup offers. You might even insist that if a backup offer is received and the buyer is notified that there is a limited time for this contingency to be removed. Doing this can bring greater urgency to closing the transaction and protect the seller's interest. Often there are other people who will need to approve the transaction. Be sure you know who they are, what they need to approve, and when they need to improve, to approve it. Right, you're basically trying to remove, remove as many obstacles to closing as possible. Right, if family members are helping fund the transaction through gifts or, co or or co signing, be sure to meet with them as quickly as possible, preferably before the contract is signed. Any uh, such subject to approvals will need to be specified in the contract and have short timelines. It is even better to make them subject to disapproval. Um, disapproval. What I mean is this: word the contract such that if approval is not provided in writing by with by a specific deadline, approval is legally assumed that a transaction can um, can move forward. So instead of saying, um, oh, "I think you get it right," you got to tell us you don't want the deal. Otherwise, we're just moving forward. In many areas, attorneys are directly involved in the closing process, usually one for the seller and one for the buyer. You will need to work directly with them and be sure that they get whatever information they need. 
Attorneys sometimes take a more active role in a transaction than inspected, raising questions about specific language or details which may seem incidental to the transaction. As in all the time, I fucking hate lawyers. When it comes to this, most lawyers are deal killers, right? think they're getting paid to fucking murder deals. Back to the book. No matter, just be proactive and get any and all questions answered in a timely fashion. Even if those areas, even in those areas where attorneys are not regularly used, the buyer or seller want the contract reviewed. You need to know about this and be sure it doesn't delay the closing process. Finally, in a shifted market, there will be short sales or third-party sales, relocation or estate, in which a lender, company, institution, or trustee will need to approve the sale. It will be important to know who they are and how they can be contacted. Then, once again, you will need to take the initiative to be sure they are provided what they need and when they need it. You must facilitate their approval. In these cases, you will need to let the buyer know what is happening and the realistic timetable for getting the approvals. It is always wise to set up a key contact list in the transaction file, so it will be easier for you to communicate with them on a planned basis. Here we got a little parties to the sale checklist. Parties to the transaction. There's buyers, sellers, co-op agents, lender, loan officer, mortgage processor. Closing slash escrow company, closing officer assistant, attorneys, third parties like loss mitigation, relocation, estate, and of course, referral sources, agents, past clients, relocation, etc. Contact information, name, home address, home phone, home fax, personal email, cell phone, business address, business phone, business fax, business mail, executive administrative assistant, gatekeeper, preferred methods and times of contact. That's figure number 62. It's parties of the sale checklist. So you know who's participating in your deal. The best time to get all the names and contact information is right at the beginning. If you have an assistant, virtual or real, full-time or part-time, you can get the inf- uh, get the information to them to do the input, but it needs to be done consistently and immediately. You'll be making many calls and contacts from contract to closing, and some will be urgent, so keep these names and this information with you at all times. Put a copy of your key contacts list in the transaction file uh, and carry another with you. Just be in your um, phone now, right? I don't know. If, maybe not at the time you wrote this. Uh, number five, co-opt agent. Sales is inherently competitive. Individuals who work without the safety net of a salary have good reason to fight for each and every sale. Their livelihood depends on it. What makes real estate sales so remarkable is how amazingly cooperative it can be. Yes, we're competitors, but we see the value in working together. Our trade association, local boards, and multiple listing services have evolved into a system of cooperative competition called, call it a a coopetition. In any case, it's an interdependent industry with an amazing range of knowledge, skill, and diligence on display among brokers and agents. And you never know which agent you'll get. One day you'll work with a salesperson with thousands of sales to their credit, And at the next, you'll introduce yourself to a new agent fresh out of real estate school. So in every transaction, it's critical that you carefully assess who you are co-oping with their experience, their communication ability, their knowledge, and yes, even their ethics. Identify their strengths and know where you might have to carry the load and vice versa. You're going to be working with them and through them until this transaction gets closed. So you might just as well get things straight up front. Once you have signed and accepted a purchase contract, it's time to move from negotiating into cooperating. 
An initial meeting is essential to lay down the plan, agree on the timeline, and assign accountability for each part of the process. Insist on it. This should feel very cooperative and synergistic. After all, you both have the same goal, a complete closing, earn commissions, and satisfy clients, which is what the game is, right? That's all that really matters. After your initial meeting, you will have a good sense of who you are working with and what you'll have to watch for. If they have some misunderstandings or have given some misinformation to their clients now or during the closing process, you will need to kindly but strongly confront the issue and get the right perspective in place. If they don't budge, you may have to talk to their broker or a top agent in their office with whom you have a good working relationship. You cannot let misinformation or wrong advice persist. It could blow up in everyone's face. And it's just your job to educate them too, right? And you want to take the initiative in selecting all the vendors who will support the transaction. Lenders, attorneys, inspectors, closing companies, and more. Just offer to take care of it. If they want to use someone that you don't trust, express your concerns and seek vendors that meet with you both for uh, with both of your approval. While you will need to be the one who is tracking the process, checking what is getting done and when, insisting that the right things happen, you are not trying to micromanage the other agent. They have a job to do and you respect that, but you are going to own the outcome and be accountable to things getting done as they should. This is really important too. This happens. Actually, this is something good from the wholesale world as well. The who and why something didn't happen doesn't really matter, um, at least as far as your paycheck is concerned, right? A closing is a closing. Um, I've had to do a ton of shit that I should never have done with partners um, and with agents and with sellers, and it's bullshit, and it's not fair, and it's not right, and I can tell you the number of times pointing out to them helped get the deal done. Zero. So um, do what you got to do to get the deal closed, right? as long as ethical and legal and don't worry about taking credit, just get it done. All right. On the other hand, you're going to be assertive, insistent, and determined in the end. If they drop the ball or leave you doing most of the work, Oh, well, it's just part of the game. Yeah. He did that right there. Yeah. (laughs) He's, he knows where this is going. The bar is pretty low in the agent world and let's face it. It's equally low, perhaps worse. And the investor world, right? How many, get rich quick people or how many arrogant people, you know, think they know everything right. Going to just happens everywhere. And I bet it's like this in every industry too. Here's the truth. Agents gain a reputation among other agents and among vendors for that matter. That reputation will either serve them in times of need or fail them when they need someone's help. And that is so true on a long enough timeline. Don't worry about credit because it will fall back in your lap anyway. You want to be the most trusted and respected agent in your area or investor, right? The one everyone looks forward to having as a co-op agent in their deal. So all your extra work and diligence and bulletproofing and overseeing the transaction will come back to serve you in the long run. Once again, it's not about one deal or one year. It's about your career and same thing in the investing side, man. Number six deadlines. Deadlines are called that for a reason. Cross the line and the deal is dead. Every real estate sales contract has specific language outlining the dates and times that must be met. And there's no tiptoeing around them. If you miss a deadline, you can put the transaction at risk. You'll adopt the mental set of an air traffic controller. 
excuse me, even if you're only, even if you only represent one of the parties in the deal, you will want to track all the moving parts, inspections, approvals, funding, closing, occupancy, and any other critical dates for completion. You will be the one who reminds others what they need to do and by when they need to do it, even if they've already been giving a copy of the contract and notified of their responsibilities. You'll adopt the mentality of an air traffic controller. I like that. doesn't matter. I'm highlighting a lot of these pages, which is good. Time is not on your side. Is it ever? Nobody's getting out of this fucker alive, right? Um, you will you will bring urgency and timeliness to the process. This requires being very assertive with consideration and respect, of course, and reminding others about the consequences of missed deadlines. You will have to be on top of the process and tough-minded about the schedule. The contract to close checklist, see below, will be your roadmap to staying on course and on time. You may decide to add other items and deadlines to this checklist. There may be specific practices and procedures that are unique to your real estate market. The important point is here to have a checklist you can share, follow, and update. It allows you to set expectations with each of the parties to the sale Anticipate issues, communicate in a timely manner, and be assured that everything is moving effectively towards successful closing. And here, I'm going to go ahead and read you the contract to close list, right? I hope you guys are reading along too and not just reading with me. You're far more likely to learn if you are. Contract to close checklist. Number one, contract and earnest money received. And each one of these has two dates, date expected, date completed. So number two, earnest money received. Number three, final opened and key contacts added. File open. Um, number four, introduction letter sent to clients. Number five, payoff slash assumption statement ordered. Number six, payoff statement received. Number seven, commitment sent to lender. Number eight, commitment sent to the other agent. Number nine, HOA info, resale certification received. Number 10, survey ordered or existing survey verified. Number 11, hazard insurance information received. Number 12, terminal inspection received. Number 13, full inspection received. Uh, number 14, repairs addendum signed and received. Um, number 15, repair completed and invoice received. Number 16, home warranty ordered. Number 17, lender docs received and verified. Number 18, closing scheduled with all vendors. Number 19, closing schedule slash reminder sent to clients. Um, number 20, HUD statement reviewed and approved. Number 21, final closing packet prepared. Number 22, other. Right, And you can put all this in a project management software and make it automated, create tasks at certain times. You don't have to just use a sheet. All right. Two timeless strategies. It can be called buyer's remorse or cold feet or second thoughts or the jitters or any a number of interesting euphemisms. But the reason a transaction falls apart may not be due to any one specific issue. The fact is that it all really boils down to fear. So while the six issues we've just comp uh, covered comprise the critical components in any transaction, an issue may just provide a reluctant buyer, an easy way to back out of the deal. Emotions often drive home buying decisions, be they going in or getting out. This happens all the time. On the sell side and on the buy side, emotions, human emotions, right? Where logic fails. In a shifted market, the decision to buy is complicated by external or subconscious factors such as negative press, the foreclosure reports, and the less informed opinions. That's a nice way to put it. 
the less informed opinions of friends and family. You know, um, the same reason I don't work with sellers who know it all. Because I don't know it all. Oh, you know it all. Go work with someone else. Because I know exactly how that's going to end, right? I think you do too. Maybe that's just me. I don't think so, but. We've described all this before. Your success is dependent on your ability to keep everyone, buyers, sellers, appraisers, lenders, and all vendors on the straight and narrow path to closing. Proactive is better than reactive. The advantage always goes to the ones who keep their head and anticipate where everything might go wrong. Always. Person who moves first. Let me put it to you this way. It's never an advantage to be in a defensive position. There are better defensive positions than others, but it's never an advantage, right? The first person who moves is generally the one who has the advantage, right? First counts for a lot. Most of the time, disclaimers and everything else, right? It's not just a win for you. It's a win for all those involved, particularly sellers and buyers. Going back to ground zero and starting all over again seldom serves the interests of anyone. Your job is to keep everyone's eyes on the prize. A successful, completed, and closed transaction. And that is your job, right? Same thing if you're wholesaling or you're flipping. You got investors, right? You can approach the same attitude with everybody in your current organization, even if you're selling widgets right now, right? or logos, or video processing, whatever, right? There are two timeless strategies that the best professionals use to stay on track and get to the finish line. Proactive prevention and early response. I'm just highlighting this whole fucking chapter. The first keeps everyone focused on the positive, intentional, adaptable, certain achievement of the goal. The second focuses on the responsible players, usually the agent's and the vendors on awareness, accountability, problem solving, customer handling of whatever goes wrong. These are the best tools for fighting the frequently cited law made famous in 1949 by Captain Edward A. Murphy, an engineer at Edwards Air Force Base. If anything can go wrong, it will. So take Murphy out of the game and keep everybody's heads in it. And then there's a here we go. We got bulletproofing strategy number one: proactive prevention with buyer, sellers, vendors, and co-ops. A, outcome framing. What do we want to achieve? B, setting expectations. What do we really, really realistically need to consider? C, preparing alternatives. What we would we do if? Um, D, reassurance. We're on track, ahead of the game, and doing fine. Number two, early response to problems and issues. A, constant communication. What's happening? How are you doing? B, inspecting expectations. Has it been done? What will you do now? C, problem solving. What do we need to do now? How can this get done? D, contract to close tracking. What is our progress and what's next? Number one, proactive prevention. In a shifted market, you'll have to deal with buyer remorse, seller reluctance, loan processing delays, even last-minute failures to fund, tight appraisals, tough inspections, and anxiety all around. You must be the calmest person and the calming influence in the transaction. I agree with that completely. I've saved multiple deals. Um, I let one seller, literally, he didn't understand what was happening. He just tore me a new asshole because he didn't know. I just let him do it, and he figured it out 15 minutes later and gave me the deal back. I didn't even have to ask for it. In his famous poem, If, 
Rudyard Kipling encourages us to keep your head while all about you, while all about you are losing theirs. It's timeless advice and perfectly applicable to the role you will play in a trouble transaction. Uh, thorough prep, uh, thorough preparation positions you to solve problems quickly, act with calm confidence and keep others from losing it. And nearly every situation is effective to remind people about the intended results of their decisions and actions. This is called outcome framing. And every great salesperson uses this effective technique. It's a very powerful mental, mental skill. Begin with the end in mind and then constantly keep people in touch with that picture. The anticipation of actually being in that picture, glad they did it, what they did set out to do and enjoying the benefits of it. In times of fear, doubt, or emotional reaction, the picture of the desired outcome can bring them back to reality. And something I say all the time is uncertainty kills deals. Let people know what's happening. Tell them what you're going to do. Do it. Tell them what you told, you know, tell them what you did. Proactive prevention. Number one, outcome framing. What do we want to achieve? Number two, setting expectations. What do we realistically need to consider? Number three, preparing alternatives. What will we do if? Number four. Reassurance, we're on track, ahead of the game, and doing fine. Once the buyer makes a decision to buy a particular home and the offer has been accepted, you as their agent must help them deal with buyer's remorse. It is an age-old malady experienced by almost everyone who makes a big purchase or financial decision. They begin to second-guess themselves, to imagine the worst possible outcomes, and to pay attention to less than knowledgeable advice from friends, relatives, and colleagues. As their trusted agent, you must warn them about this and give them practical ways to handle it. Um, Set up early warning feedback and quick response action plans to handle the unforeseen and unexpected, which for you are actually foreseen and expected. Your buyers avoid being blindsided because you're attentive and responsive. Keeping things as calm as possible means setting the right expectations from start to finish with anyone and everyone in the transaction. First, with buyers, you must remind them that there are only a few great deals in this market and they have purchased one of those. Beyond that, you want to help them realize and not forget that this home they have decided to buy fits their criteria. It meets their needs and many of their wants. It is not a home they would want to lose, nor would they be uh, nor the ones go through another long search to find one that is comparable. In fact, you make it clear to them there may not be another one that is such a good fit. While sellers may be less likely to want to pull back from a completed sales contract, they may still be emotionally reactive, particularly if they are asked to make any additional contributions such as doing repairs, providing a repair allowance, offering additional seller concessions, or changing the closing schedule to benefit the buyer. So, You must prepare them for these possibilities ahead of time. Let them know that these changes are normal and that they may be required to get the home sold. No obstacle is too big if we have thought our way over, around, or under it. Plan in advance, right? It is important that we consider all our alternatives and options if something doesn't work out. And it's best to do this well in advance. Sometimes we do this on our own so as not to overly concern the customer. More often, we will need to engage them in this creative process. Be ready to take care of repairs, find additional funds, provide creative financing, allow for an altered timetable, or file additional paperwork. For each key issue or event in the transaction, we need to be ready to move past the obstacle. Sincere reassurance 
delivered confidently and proactively, builds trust and peace of mind for the clients. And what this means is um, we don't use this to sell them shit they don't need, right? But if we know this is what they want, we've run them through a process, they've been clear about what they want, we know what their goals are, and this solves their problem, and they're not likely to get it again, you got to do what you got to do, man. Be sincere about it, right? Don't use your powers for evil. For some reason, this is often a step some agents leave out, and that's a mistake. Just because things are going well and you feel great, don't assume your buyers and sellers understand that and feel great too. They need to be told. In the absence of reassurance, they may start to worry and doubt. Keeping their emotions and personal sense of well-being is in a good place is, in the end, your responsibility. It's as simple as letting them know that this is normal and this happens more often than you think. It's as direct as saying, thanks for letting me know what's on your mind and I want you to know what I'm aware of, or I'm on top of it. You're just letting them know that they and their transaction matter to you and you are paying attention to all the details and they can ask you whatever they want, whenever they want. Even if you need to communicate some problems or prepare some backup alternatives, they need to feel your strength and know that you are moving things along toward the outcome they want. It's difficult to fake this, so the key to be reassuring is to know in your own mind that you are in control. When people know they can trust you, that you do what you say you'll do, and that you can care about them, and that you do care about them, they not only enjoy the peace of mind, but they become your enthusiastic advocates, or those Seth Godin describes as sneezers in his paradigm of viral marketing. In a shifted market, this word-of-mouth dissemination of your name and reputation is pure gold, Right? I think even now it is, but especially in a shifted market, which is I'm pretty sure what I, I think he means because that's what he's talking about, the shift, right? Number two, early response. There are few things that left on their own get better. In fact, there's a scientific law for this truth. It's called entropy, which informally says anything left alone tends to fall apart. I say this all the time. Um, scientists who defined this phenomenon surely studied real estate transactions and they shifted market entropy is spelled with a with the capital E. <coughs> Excuse me. Natural forces work against getting to closing in a way that just isn't true in a seller's market. So there will be absolutely be times that all your proactive prevention was for not. You anticipated the issue and you did everything in your power to keep the transaction on track but a touch issue still comes up and puts a transaction in jeopardy. The appropriate course of action is then to respond immediately. Early response is you keep things together even when they are trying their best to fall apart. We got a little chart here. Early response, constant communication. What's happening? How are you doing? Number two, inspecting expectations. Has it been done? What will you do now? Number three, problem solving. What do we need to do now? How can this get done? Number four, Contract to closing to close tracking. What is our progress? What's next? I once heard an agent say that her motto was constant communication creates customer confidence. That's a great way to think and act. It is important all the way through the selling and buying process. I think I can do. I think I can improve that a lot. Actually, I don't think sometimes I communicate enough. Anyway. A little note for me. Maybe you, maybe you could do better too. I don't know. Maybe you're doing great. Uh, 
That's a great way to think and act. It is important all the way through the selling and buying process, but nowhere is it more so than during the time period from contract to closing. It's a mistake to assume that the buyer or seller knows that you are working to get everything done. Communication should happen on a consistent, predetermined basis, even if there are no problems to discuss or decisions to be made. No news is good news is never an option for a sales professional. There's always more information to glean, a relationship to be deepened, and possibly leads to be had. The truth is that both sellers and buyers actually believe that no news is probably bad news. Even if they just believe that no news is simply no news, they're going to feel uh, they are being treated like a nobody, or even worse, that you aren't really doing anything about their deal. You're just busy working with other people. Constant, consistent communication is the way you prevent any of these negative thoughts and their troubling outcomes. This doesn't mean hours and hours of communication, just consistent, predictable communication. It's not about spending a lot of time. It's about being uh, timely. If you call them on a regular, predictable basis, they will know you are serving them. And if you allow them to be aware of how they are doing, how they are feeling, and what they might be worried about. If there is an issue, being aware of it sooner is better than hearing about it later when it's too late to do anything. When it comes to the work of the vendors to the transaction, accountability is the key. You must inspect what you expect. That's so true. They must know you are paying attention to what they are doing and that you care about what is being done on time and right the first time. It's amazing how much faster and better work gets done when somebody knows they are being watched. This is called the Hawthorne effect and was discovered in the 1920s while studying factory worker performance. No matter what the environment, the work being done always improved when the workers were being watched. For the vendors to the transaction, you are the one watching. Try to visit with your vendors each week to catch up on what they are seeing and what they are doing about it. This will provide you with an early warning system when things start to get behind or slide off track. And the benefits run both ways. You can provide extra assistance and accountability on the transactions involving your customers, and they can give you insight and forewarning on new issues they are seeing in transactions with other customers. Problem solving is both a skill and a process. You can be a creative person in finding alternative ways to get things done, and you can be a catalyst for the creativity of others. When it comes to working through a difficult issue in the transaction, you will likely need to do both. Over time, you'll take the wisdom of experience and find new ways to solve all problems, creative financing, win-win negotiations, zoning approvals, or low-cost repair techniques. And you can become adept at seeking the expertise and creativity in others. You may even engage your clients in the process, particularly if they are required to approve of the final solution. People almost always support those plans and ideas they had a hand in creating. This is actually something Joe does to me all the time. What do you think about this? What do you think about that? Oh, okay. So you'll be like, all right. All right. So when can you have that done? Boom. I got tricked. Works all the time, every time. Finally, if you are going to do complex and exacting professional work, you need a checklist. Airline pilots may have flown hundreds of flights and thousands of miles, but before every takeoff, they run their checklist. They may even be able to do it from memory with their eyes closed, but they read the checklist, review each item, make sure it's done and mark it off. You'll do the same thing. It prevents unforeseen accidents and allows for the early detection of problems. The contract to close checklist, figure 63 on page 260, we already went through, is a good model to use. 
It is based on our research with the real estate industry's top agents, administrative assistants, and transaction coordinators. Make it yours, add whatever key items fit your local market, and then use it to fly your transactions to safe landings at the closing table. Playing defense. Forewarned is forearmed. The ultimate control issue hasn't changed. You must get every transaction to and through closing. You'll do it as a fiduciary service to your clients, and frankly, you do it to get paid. A downshifted market just complicates the challenge and cranks up the pressure. Typically, fall-throughs or DNCs did not close can increase from under 5% in the seller's market to well over 25% in a shifted market. So anticipate problems and proactively take the steps that will prevent anything from sabotaging the deal. If finding the motivated, getting to the table, and creating urgency represent playing offense in the game of real estate sales, then bulletproofing the transaction is about playing defense. You take charge. Occasionally, you will never need to be a bit. Pu- you will even need to be a bit pushy in protecting your client's welfare and your transaction. If you play it right, there won't be that many surprises. You'll catch things early, even before the problems occur, and certainly before they put the closing at risk. The procedures you put in place will serve you in every market. There are always the right thing. They are always the right thing to do, but in a downshifted market, they make an even bigger difference. The difference of whether or not you get paid for your work. In the long term, your professional fail-safe systems establish you as a reliable, trustworthy, competent professional that gets things done, done right, and done on time. That kind of reputation means money in your pocket, a career worth having, and a business that not only grows, but is absolutely worth owning. The real estate sales business game really has a beginning and an end. Both are critical to our success. At the beginning, we must lead generate for sellers and buyers, convert these leads to appointments, and then bring about a meeting of the minds, an accepted purchase offer contract. In the end, we must get that contract and all the involved parties to a satisfactory closing. The first part is the hard, focused work of making connections and achieving agreements. It's heads down. The second part is the wide-eyed, vigilant leadership of the transaction until it makes it to closing. It's heads up. So forever remember this truth about our profession. We do our deals heads down, but we save our deals heads up. All right, the gift of shift. Successful people shift always, continuously, relentlessly. (laughs) Sorry, one of my buddies just came and said hi at the window. Um, Whether it is in response to the market or their own goals, high achievers are always challenging, are always changing, altering and adjusting. This is what their life looks like. Successful people know they must constantly change and adapt if they are to stay successful. They know life is too big to think small and too short to move slowly. They know there are ups and downs. They know the old endings can give way to new and better beginnings. And they know that to triumph in any situation, they must Always do one thing, shift. Sometimes shifts just happen, and sometimes you make them happen. They happen when you least expect them, and they happen when you most want them. Sometimes it doesn't feel right, and sometimes it does. Whether you suddenly find you must shift or you suddenly find that you want to shift, the issues are the same. Whether you're in a buyer's market or a seller's market, the issues are the same. And it doesn't matter if you're trying to keep from going backward or wanting to push forward, the issues are the same. In fact, If you should find that you need to shift and don't, you'll be one shift shy of what you really need. Hard times aren't easy, hence the name. But you know what? 
easy times aren't easy either. Life is a continuous challenge. I like that. I've learned to appreciate the harder times in my life. People say hard times aren't easy and easy times aren't hard, but I'm not so sure that's true or it serves you well to look at it that way. I believe it's fair to say that no matter your circumstances, things can be easy or hard depending on you. You'll decide. You can either make easy times harder than they need to be, or you can make harder times easy as they can be. You don't get to decide what the market will do, but you definitely get to decide what you will do. My preacher, Doug, tells a funny story that sheds some light on an agent's relationship to the market. The captain of a ship notices a light in the distance. The captain radios out and says, we're headed straight for you. Change course. The reply comes back. This is the harbor master. The lighthouse isn't moving. Sometimes changing course isn't an option. Sometimes you shift because you have to. Now, no one is promising that you'll make the same money no matter the market. A lot of factors go into determining that. The bottom line is that you should make the best of any situation. Unfortunately, not everyone sees it this way. Some people truly do see tough times as times filled with too many problems to handle and wish for a problem-free market. That problem-free market does not exist. It's a fantasy, folks. There's no such thing as no problems. Dr. Norman Vincent Pearl once told the story of a young man who came to him and said he wished he didn't have any problems. He said that life was just too tough. And he really wanted all of his problems to go away. Dr. Peel replied, I know of a place where no one has any problems whatsoever. Would you like to know where it is? The young man excitedly said, yes. Dr. Peel then said, it's Woodlawn Cemetery. You still want to go? The only dead don't have problems. The living always have problems to solve and challenges to overcome. That's life. The real difference between people is how they deal with them. If you want to have fewer problems, I suggest you learn to become comfortable with being uncomfortable. Learn to shift. I used to have a thing I put at the bottom of my email, make your life uncomfortable. Kind of like that. Uh, You'll be clear if you always think of any shift as a shift of choice. You're not always getting to pick the circumstances, but you're always choosing to shift no matter what the circumstances. So if the market shifts, you're shifting. And if the market isn't shifting, you're shifting. In other words, to be your best, you can't be shiftless. You're not going to rest on your past nor assume that your future is set. To reach your full potential, you are going to become like a priceless diamond and always apply the necessary pressure to harden and shine. And no matter the market, you choose to enjoy the ride. Be careful what you wish for. That comment really hit me one day while I was having lunch with my wife, Mary. I shared with her that I've been wishing that I could just shut my eyes and when I opened them, the shift we were currently in would have passed. I told her that as I thought about this, I suddenly realized that wasn't what I really wanted. It dawned on me that if I fast forward my life a few years, this shift might be over, but so would a lot of other things. I would have missed so much. Even in tough times, there's so much to savor. Our dog, Max, was getting up in age and we were having a wonderful time with him. The shift would be over, but he might be gone. Our son, John, was 16 and we loved having him with us. The shift would be over, but he'd be in college, never to live in our home again. My daughter, my or my mom, was doing great, but she wasn't young anymore. The shift would be over, and she might be not might not be doing as well. Then I realized one thing: take nothing for granted, assume nothing, appreciate every moment for what it is. Take the good with the bad, and the bad with the good. 
I've been thinking that the timing of things always had to be perfect. And then I understood with total clarity that any time you have is already perfect. Quit waiting, man. No, I would never wish any of this away, not for any relief from or avoidance of some difficulties. If I want all the good days, the precious times and the meaningful moments, then I'll just have to take the challenges that life brings along with them. I know I can't have one without the other, nor can you. If you want to be your best and experience greatness in your life, you'll be experiencing both sides of it almost always at the same time. Besides, as an old English proverb says, a smooth sea never made a skillful mariner. The good and the bad, the hard and the easy all work together to shape the person you become. Don't wish your life away. Embrace every moment. The farmer's luck. Think of a shift as an opportunity. Dave Jinks often credits Price Pritchett, one of the favorite business authors, as saying change always comes bearing gifts. I believe this is true. Change can surprise us with the benefits it can bring. Jay Papasan brought this truth home to Dave and me by sharing this story. His children love to have him read a picture book called Zen Shorts about a giant panda bear that befriends three siblings, Addie, Michael, and Carl. In the book, Stillwater, the bear tells Michael the story of The Farmer's Luck, an ancient Taoist tale. Many years ago, there lived a farmer who toiled daily in his fields. One day, without warning, his prize horse, the one he relied on to work the land, ran away. When the news reached his neighbors, they arrived at his door to offer consolation. What bad luck, they said with concern. Maybe, answered the farmer. The following morning, the farmer awoke to find his prize horse had returned, and with it, two wild horses. Upon hearing the news, the neighbor exclaimed, What good luck? Maybe, replied the farmer. The very next day, while trying to tame one of the wild horses, the farmer's son was thrown and badly injured his leg. Again, the neighbors arrived quickly to offer their condolences. Such bad luck, they said. Maybe, answered the farmer. A day later, officials from the military arrived looking for young men to fight in battle. Recognizing that the farmer's son was badly injured, they did not take him to enlist. To enlist. Such good luck, shouted the neighbors. Maybe, answered the farmer. After hearing the story, Yarn Michael said, I get it. Maybe good luck and bad luck are all mixed up. You never know what will happen next. This is true for all of us. The good and the bad happen at the same time. In fact, it can sometimes be difficult to tell one from the other. Or as Abe Lincoln said, nothing is either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. There can be a gift of the shift and perhaps even more than one. Whether we see times as full of difficulty or full of opportunity, they will most likely turn out exactly as we see them. In the end, we determine the times by our choices. Our choice will either try to avoid them and wish they weren't true or to embrace the opportunities they offer. Tackling tough times. By choosing to embrace opportunity, you're choosing to shift. And whether a market shift forces you to choose or you simply choose to shift your business to another level, There are 12 issues you must tackle. Although we've been looking at them through the eyes of a market shift, they aren't just about that. These are, in fact, the 12 fundamentals of shifting your business anytime and anywhere. This just may be one of the biggest ahas you get from the shift. These 12 tactics are not just timely, they are timeless. There are times in life when a market shifts and you'll have to shift to react. There are times when you simply need to make a shift. These 12 tactics are appropriate for when you've been shifted and for when you choose to make a shift. When you've been disrupted by the market or when you want to disrupt the competition, 
Master these 12 tactics and you gain utmost control over your business. Fail to master them and at some point a shift will put you at the whims of the market and your competition. So whether you're dealing with a market shift or you've decided to give your business a lift, there are 12 things you need to do. First, get real about your situation and get right about what you're doing. Bring a greater sense of clarity, priority, and focus to your work. Look at your role and what and do what you do best and get paid the most for. Most likely, that will be lead generation and conversion. Second, remargin your business and get serious about expense management and profitability. Stop spending money on your business and start investing money in it. Lead with revenue, not expenses. Be a budget bully and make your money smart. Third, learn to do more with less. Maximize your productivity. Focus on the six core competencies of real estate sales business and hold everyone around you to the highest standards. Follow a clear process for hiring and firing continually top grade your people and annually upgrade your systems. Fourth, Focus your lead generation on finding motivated clients. Time block to ensure this gets done every day. Master the tasks, skills, and scripts of your lead generation method. Make your message match your market and always make direct and indirect offers for immediate response. Fifth, memorize and internalize the conversion process and the scripts of lead capture, connect, and close. Make sure everyone around you does the same. Never assume you have a lead until you have an appointment. Sixth, Catch people in your web and focus your internet strategy on capturing contact information. Everything else it does can be important, but secondary. Offer thin bait to attract hits and fat bait to give them a reason to register. Rapid response is your standard. Seventh, master seller pricing so your listings can always are always in the market. Show sellers the financial risk of, of being overpriced, missing the window of opportunity, and chasing the market. Build price reductions into your agreement up front. Eighth, master staging strategies so your sellers always stand out from the competition. Show them how proper cleanup, repairs, and cosmetic improvements will decrease the time on the market, increase the number of offers, and gain a higher sales price. Ninth, help buyers overcome reluctance and acquire genuine urgency. Become their local economist of choice. Help them tap into their why and show them the hazards of trying to time the market. Narrow the field and provide best buy lists so they see the opportunities that exist in their market. Tenth, build a creative finance team around you and put creative financing to use wherever you can. Use seller creativity, concessions, contributions, buy-downs, and owner financing, buyer down payment creativity, Family, specialized agency, government grants, and retirement fund loans. And lender creativity, FHA, special federally funded guaranteed loans, municipal and state programs, and special application procedures. Eleventh, participate in the market at the moment to give your business bandwidth. Know the ins and outs of short sales, foreclosures, and REOs. Also become a specialist in capturing and converting the leads from yours and others' REO listings. Twelfth, bulletproof your transaction. Take nothing for granted. Set seller and buyer expectations up front. Involve yourself in the selection and supervision of all vendors. Be personally involved in inspections, repairs, and any final negotiations. And employ a step-by-step process to address buyer or seller remorse. 
Tackling these areas is a never-ending process. It's the real estate business. Downward shifts are more difficult on the front end. Upward shifts become more difficult on the back end. On the front end, oh, I like that. There's a joke there too. I think you got it. I don't have to say it, right? You can imagine it. On the front end of a buyer's market, you have fewer available sales and fewer available commissions per agent and listings won't sell, which translates into seller dissatisfaction is negatively emotional on the downward slope. Sellers are frustrated and confused while buyers are fearful and reluctant. On the other hand, a sustained seller's market finishes with high competition. Competitors start discounting their value and then start discounting their price. Maintaining an adequate seller listing inventory becomes a real concern. Economic shifts come in two shapes. These 12 topics and their tactics are timeless and apply to both. Success in a buyer's market just requires you to do to be doing the things you should have been doing all along. Act your wage. To successfully imp- implement these 12 tactics, you must act your wage. This means you must think and act the wage you want before you earn it. Average is as average does. Good is as good does. And great is as great does. What you do, what you do is who you become. That's good advice, right? Are you acting your wage? A lot of people struggle with this concept. They truly don't understand that if they want to earn a certain amount more, then they must live the calendar of a person who earns that or they won't earn it. It's really that simple. I believe thoughts come before actions and actions come before results. This means unless you're counting on a lot of luck, you must think and act in such a way as to realize your goals. So which comes first, thoughts or actions? Thoughts. You think before you act. Then which comes next, actions or results? Actions. You do something, then you get the result. So in other words, it's thoughts plus actions, then results. In that order. Why? Because life is an inside first, outside second experience. How you think determines what you do and what you do determines the results you get. I was visiting with a real estate agent and as I truly got a sense of what he was capable of, I made this comment. I think you're a $50 million a year producer masquerading as a $10 million a year producer. He was shocked and asked what I meant and I said, All I mean is that you appear to have amazing potential, but you're thinking and acting like a $1 million producer. I told him he was underperforming because he was underacting. I said, if you want to grow to the next level, you better start acting your wage. And the same applies to you. You must think, like, and take the actions of the production you want, or you won't ever get it. So if you want to shift your business to the next level, You better start acting your wage. Getting what we want in life requires hard work and there are no guarantees. Someone must told me you must put in the time before you see a dime and I agree. You must put a plan in place that focuses on the actions necessary to get the results you want. And just so we're clear, if if it took you longer to say it than it did to think it up, it's not a plan. Thinking and deciding to work is the hard work of planning. Talking is the easy part. Yeah, talking goes nowhere, Randrick. Talk is cheap. Take a look at the 12 issues and based upon your business goals and current situation, prioritize them by asking this question. If I can do just one of them, which would make the biggest difference in my business? From the one thing, right? Write down the answer. This is your first priority. Then ask the question, if I can only do one more, what would that be? Write down the answer and keep doing this until you've written down all 12 issues in a priority list. 
you now have your marching orders. You know what to do and what to do first. Now go back to each item and ask three questions. Do I know how to do this? Do I need anything to do this? Do I need help doing it? The answers will give you a list of what you need to know, what you need to have, and whose support you'll need to do each priority. Now start with the first priority and begin accomplishing your goals. The speed of need. If you want to be effective and efficient, keep things simple. Don't try and accomplish everything at once. Just do the few things that matter most and see what happens. I think we've put the 12 issues in the proper order in which they occur in everyone's business, but I don't think they're necessarily in the priority order for anyone in particular. Your business is your business and your priorities are yours and yours alone. You know your goals and you know where you currently stand. You also know what is holding you back. Some people ask me what I think, but I always answer with, what do you think? Invariably, they know the answer. Everyone deep down knows their answers if they'll stop long enough to ask the question and think about it. I believe you have to slow down for just a second before speeding up. The slowing down is for asking the question and then being still long enough to hear the answer. After that, it's time to take action at the speed of your need. Some people say that the need they feel the need for speed, and I know what they mean. I certainly feel that. However, I think it's more instructive to acknowledge that everyone moves at a different as speed of their need, that we all get our actual speed from our big whys. If you're in touch with what you really want and have turned that into a need, then I believe that need now sets the pace you'll move to get to it. Velocity creates momentum and haste drive and haste driven by big motives and prioritized plans is never a waste. So when you see an individual moving positively in the direction of their dreams, you're seeing someone who is in touch with their biggest whys. When you're clear about what you desire, then you'll be clear about the speed you need to get. You'll, you need to move to get it. If you'll take, if you'll then take your priorities to your calendar and time block for them based upon this way of thinking, You'll get the most out of yourself and your career and your life. You'll be moving at the speed of need. Any other way will leave you wanting or waiting. We fail our way to success. The real estate business has always been cyclical. If you're going to be successful over the long haul, you will prepare for those cycles and find opportunities in them. Your determination, your preparation, and your implementation will put you on the right path to your goals. You will consistently be in step with the consumer and ahead of your competition. Others may see things as good times and bad times. You will always see them as opportunity time. One of the greatest myths is that you can succeed your way to success. This isn't true. In fact, just the opposite is true. You fail your way to success. Everyone fails. The ones who succeed are the ones who keep going. That's so true. I was raised in a particular environment where every failure was like a personal character flaw. And I took failure like like a personal uh, assault against my character, um, which makes life very difficult living that way, right? Um, the fact of the matter is success is built on heaping piles of failure, right? Back to the book. The ones who fail, the ones who don't. When you succeed, you do an end zone dance and celebrate. When you lose, you seek to find out what happened, learn from your mistake, and push forward. Failing at something isn't failing. It's learning that didn't work and growing from the experience. Zig Ziglar was right when he said a big shot is a little shot that just keeps shooting, that just kept shooting. 
Everyone falls down, but not everyone gets up. The trick in life is to get up. The world won't judge you by your failures, but by how many times you get back up. No matter the market and no matter your results, always get up and continue with your journey. This is what we were all meant to do. This is what you must do. Tough times are essential for top people to get ahead. Even the best need an assist by the market to gain a step on the competition. While it knocks you down, it's knocking others out. So a shift is an opportunity to get ahead or be left behind. The only question is, which one will it be for you? Time tends to reward effort and resilience. Life is still about the basics and mastering them. Two plus two still equals four. I learned this. My son learned this and you learn this. The basics are timeless in both how they work and how important they are. They're building blocks. When you learn them, everything shows up and looks like an opportunity. When you don't learn them, everything shows up and looks like a problem. Think of these 12 issues as simply another way of looking at the basics because they are the basics. Don't ever get away from doing them. Then a down market won't get you totally down and an up market can lift you to new heights. Success never comes to the chosen few, but the few who choose. These can be the worst of times. These can be the best of times you get to choose. What do you guys think? It's a little longer this week, huh? That's all right. Though success never comes to the chosen few, but to the few who choose. These can be the worst of times. These can be the best of times. You get to choose. All right. And that is the end of the shift. Time for the review. What did I highlight back on page 223? And by the way, the next one, I'm going to read everything I highlighted and create a little study sheet for the for part six, right? So here we are on page 223. Each shift has its own unique characteristics with possibilities and prospects that are specific to the market. Don't hesitate. There's a definite advantage that goes to those who move first. So they're just saying it's not always, it's never the same. And first counts for a lot. Um, three markets of the moment. Number one, short sales, individuals or families trying to avoid foreclosure. Number two, foreclosures, bargain hunters and investors seeking to buy value. Number three, REOs, financial institutions with an above average number of foreclosures to sell. Um, these homes tend to hit the market abruptly and can grow so numerous as to dominate the overall market, driving down prices even further and thereby creating a second wave of defaults and foreclosures. This downward cycle of foreclosures and falling prices can eventually feed on itself, building momentum until bargain hunters and investors are attracted back into the market. I think we went over that pretty clearly, and I saw that happen several times. Um, there, it came in waves. Unfortunately, I've seen a lot of agents spend significant time and effort trying to help someone who simply doesn't care enough to help themselves. The seller must be honest with you, and not just like honest as not lie but willing to do the work, right? And also don't work with people who lie, cheat, and steal. Just don't do it. Move on. There's more people to help, right? I know it might even be family or friends or your girlfriend or what. It just doesn't matter. Just don't do it. All right. What to include in the letter of authorization? This is for the short sale. Number one, a short letter offer authorizing you to negotiate on the owner's behalf. Number two, loan reference number or owner owner's account number. Number three, the date. 
Number four, the property address. Number five, the owner's full name and signature. Number six, owner's contact information. Number seven, agent's name and contact information. You will need to know all the documentation they require and the qualifying parameters for their willingness to do this. If a rework of the loan does not seem possible or your sellers do not even want to consider this option, then a short sale is what you need to seek, right? The hardship letter and documentation. Number one, letter from the owner. Document the financial facts that led that led to the short sale request. All right. Number two, proof of income and assets. No lying or cheating or stealing, right? It's bank statements, pay stubs, disclose and document all assets, investment accounts, 401ks, IRAs, stock, certificate of deposit, any interest and in real property or businesses. Number three. Proof of hardship. We're talking about bills, unemployment records, death certificates, divorce decrees, that kind of stuff. Number four, preliminary net sheet. Reflect the sales price you expect to get and any other fees that will be due on sale, including your commission. Include a CMA, which is comparative market analysis, with analysis of current actives, pendings, and salts. Lenders can have a heart. They'll often be sympathetic with homeowners who face true hardships that make them unable to stay current on payments or sell their home for more than what is owed. It is a lengthy process, so, pers- so persistence and patience are critical to your success. It may require many contacts, several callbacks, and even long periods on hold. Uh, workouts and short sales. A quick overview. Number one, seller typically must be 60 days behind on payments to qualify. And this varies. Number two, be sure your seller is for real. Ask for a credit report. Search for any other properties titled in their name. Right? Number three, contact the lender and submit a letter of authorization. Who is servicing the loan? This is usually your first stop. Who holds the note? Ask for a representative from the loss mitigation department authorized to negotiate a workout. Number four, document the hardship. Be accurate. Confirm everything in the hardship letter and documentation. Reliability is golden. Provide full and accurate financial disclosure. Submit a preliminary net sheet with a comprehensive market analysis. Number five, negotiate a workout. Ask the lender for forbearance, which is either to suspend or roll back or forgive or add to the mortgage or reduce payments. Ask the lender to refinance a note with more favorable terms. Ask for a short sale. If you receive an offer on a home, check it for accuracy and submit to the lender as a short sale. This will most likely happen when the lender will, this is most likely when the lender will share the terms they'll accept on the house. Number six, don't buck the system. Follow the lender's workout systems. Be persistent, patient, and even tempered. Be available and respond to any communications promptly. The two opportunities of REOs. Number one, REO seller representative. Listing agents who market their services to financial institutions needing to sell REO properties. Number two, REO buyer representative, buyer agents who market their services uh, to REO seller representatives and handle the buyer leads for those properties. Be sure you understand that these sellers are looking for two key services from their listing agents, ongoing property preservation and immediate property sales. This is from the REO agent, right? The sellers, that's what they're looking for. And that's exactly what happened last time. Common tasks in working REOs include rekeying the house, overseeing an eviction or cash for keys, inspecting the property for damage, changing over utilities, and managing maintenance and repairs. Our interviews with top REO agents indicated that one full-time talented assistant with the proper systems can handle the work on about 50 properties. The lender's asset managers often work with hundreds of properties at a time, so the better equipped an agent 
is to do volume business, the less complicated the asset manager's lives become. But don't let this discourage you. During a shift, the volume of REOs can soar, extending beyond the capabilities of the agent specialists already in the game. This is in reference to the people who benefit the most are the ones who are prepared, which are the ones who are already actively working and know. But uh, quickly, by that second cycle, right, we're talking about how just by having some foreclosures and more REOs can actually create more and further price drops, and then you have a second wave. That's what he's talking about here. Be prepared for that, too. Even if you're not in the game, you're starting late. Don't worry. There's some opportunity left, right? It has been said that luck is when preparation meets opportunity. I agree with that sentiment. Favor usually, or fortune usually favors the prepared. At the professional level, almost no one can play for pay without putting in the time, study, and work it takes to master the game. Start now. Don't pretend to know what you don't. Don't just be ready because you see the opportunity and don't just be willing to take the risk because you think you have nothing to lose. Seek the business because you've studied it, learned it, and can successfully do the work. Seek the business because you're able. Here we are back on chapter, or tactic number 12, page 241. Real estate transactions aren't particularly trouble-free in any market, but when a shift happens, few sales are easy and almost all closings are a challenge. What makes this market especially tough is the apparent apparent willingness of buyers to walk away at any point in the sale. And I would say sellers too, having experienced both sides. When everyone believes that the market is headed up, buyers are afraid of missing out. Whenever believes the market is heading down, buyers are afraid of sinking with the ship. Um, as they listen to the media, fellow coworkers, friends, and family, buyers are likely to question their own judgment all the time happens all the time. You, you better, you better deal with it and handle it and have an idea of what you're doing. Cause their family are going to have questions, right? Friends, coworkers. In other words, no sale is safe until it's sealed at closing with everyone's signatures and the fundings come through, right? The market had shifted down and my selling skills hadn't scaled up. I had assumed that all the buyers and sellers truly needed was an honest real estate agent with integrity, who was willing to provide them the absolute best services possible. And I was absolutely right. I had just overlooked one important detail. They also needed a salesperson. I had been a real estate agent, but I had also needed to be a real estate salesperson. It is entirely up to you to oversee your contracts from start to finish. You have to be good at both ends of the sale, making it and closing it. The key is to remember this simple truth. You do your deals heads down, but you save your deals heads up. Heads up is about seeing what's coming. It's about being vigilant and prepared to act. In my experience, there are four ways you can think about what might happen in any professional endeavor. Nothing will go wrong. Anything will go wrong. Something will go wrong or everything will go wrong. And in my experience, it's best it's best to prepare as if everything will go wrong. I know that sounds pessimistic, but it really isn't. And I agree with that completely. Um. Problems may or may not come at any particular time, but over time they will come. They just do. In a shift, they come more often than not. So when it comes to bulletproofing the transaction, take everything will go wrong. Take the everything will go wrong approach and keep your head up. Remember, you can predict exactly what can happen, but you can't predict when it might happen. Assume everything will go wrong and come up with ways to possibly prevent them from happening or effectively deal with them when they do. You won't be surprised when the problem shows up 
and you won't be surprised when they go away. Um, I'm not going to read all this again, but uh, we'll put it in the thing, the six. I'm just going to read the six bulletproofing transaction issues and solutions. And the issues are inspection repairs, appraisals, loan approval and funding, other contingencies, co-op agent, deadlines. Um, and they have basically it's page 246. You can look at it. Getting sales to close in a shift is not about the technical details, although being knowledgeable about them is important. It's really about what you do when issues arise, how soon you respond, how well you handle things, and how well you work with everyone involved, and ultimately both parties' willingness to close play the most significant roles in the final outcome. Don't ignore problems. They don't go away, and they only get worse the longer it takes to address them. So just eat that shit sandwich and knock it out of the park. Sellers should be prepared that any buyer will most likely ask for some repairs to be done. Consider asking the seller to have their house pre-inspected so they can be forewarned of any issues and head them off before they can cause problems, which I've never done. That's a great idea. This means appraisers are usually under increased pressure from the lender to be sure that the home is not overpriced. It's talking about how home values drop in a market, right? In a shift, fewer homes will appraise, and those that do require more attention and research from the professionals in the transaction. This is from Loan Approval and Funding. Encourage buyers to apply for a loan before they find a prospective home. It's simple logic. The moment they decide to buy is the moment they should submit an application to, to a great loan officer and lender. It's also the safest strategy to ensure they're pre-approved and that you can make a qualified offer on their behalf. Don't work with people who aren't qualified. Just waste everybody's fucking time, man. Qualify them. That's what you're getting paid to do. You're qualifying them. And if they're not qualified, help them out so they are qualified, right? Farm that guy or gal. If you are working with a buyer, explain the benefits of working with these known professionals. If they insist on using another mortgage company, get their agreement to run a parallel application. It's a move that won't cost them anything and could save them everything. Sell to them as a backup. Hey, man, it's great knowing your lender, right? Hey, I know you have a great relationship. That's awesome. But what if something goes wrong? How would you feel about losing this house? Why don't we run another application at the same time? Doesn't cost you anything. Doesn't hurt anything. Your first guy comes through. It's not a problem. But if we run the snags, we have a backup solution. And I would feel a lot better about um, you having two solutions to get the home of your dreams instead of one. Boom. There you go. Work with your proven professional partners, and if they can't be first in line to handle the business, make sure they're ready to jump in at a moment's notice. Just backups, man. Um, substantial, non-refundable, earnest money deposits can also reduce the likelihood of a buyer walking away from the purchase contract. If you represent the seller and are providing a major concession to the buyer, you may want to treat it like an option they only receive if they back it up with some additional non-refundable money. I did this all the time. The seven don'ts of mortgage funding. Number one, don't change your employment status. Number two, don't make any major purchases, cars, furniture, home, theater, vacations, etc. Don't increase your credit card debt or miss payments. Don't change bank accounts or make undisclosed large deposits. Don't apply for a credit card, co-sign a loan, or make a credit inquiry. Number six, don't spend money you have set aside for closing. Not any, not ever. Number seven. Don't delay in providing all paperwork asked for by the mortgage company. Secure the loan, close on your home. You can absolutely keep everyone and everything moving forward toward a successful closing. Just maintain close communication with all parties and above all, keep your head up. 
This is from uh, contingencies. But the goal is to have as few contingencies as possible with short timetables for clearing them. This is why you recommend pre-approved buyers and pre-inspected properties. The seller assumes a lot of risk when they take the house off the market by entering into the contract that is contingent upon the buyer selling their home, especially when homes are not selling quickly. Often there are other people who will need to approve the transaction. Be sure you know who they are what they need to approve, and when they need to approve it. If family members are, oh, sorry, it is even better to make them subject to disapproval, right? Meaning if you don't say anything, it's approved. And if you do say something, you got to tell me it's wrong, right? That's not the way most contracts are set up. That's why he's pointing that out. Attorneys sometimes take more active role in transactions than expected, raising questions about specific language or details which seem incidental to the transaction. They rarely solve problems. You better better have a way of dealing with that. Put a copy of your key contacts list in the transaction file and carry another with you. Um, this is so you don't miss out, so you always know who to contact and where. After all, you both have the same goals, a completed closing, earning commissions, and satisfied clients. This is talking about synergy and working with everybody, right? You cannot let misinformation or wrong advice persist. It could blow up in everybody's face, right? Get ahead of the stuff. They talk to their crazy neighbor, their mom who only watches, you know, whatever as the world turns. It's on the paper. It's a bad market. If you don't do it, somebody else do. Stay on top of it and act quickly. While you need to be the one who is tracking the process, checking on what's getting done and when, and insisting that the right things happen, you are not trying to micromanage the other agent. They have a job to do, and you respect that, but you are going to own the outcome and be accountable to things getting done as they should. On one hand, you're going to open, you're going to be open, supportive, and respectful. On the other hand, you're going to be assertive, insistive, and determined. In the end, if they drop the ball or leave you doing most of the work, oh, well, it's just part of the game. And in a shift, getting transaction closed is far more important to you and your customers. There you go. That reputation will either serve them in times of need or fail them when they most need someone's help. You want to be the most trusted and respected agent in your area, the one everyone looks forward to having as a co-op agent in their deal. Again, it's not about one deal or one year. It's about your career. Be that one, right? You'll adopt the mental set of an air traffic controller. Even if you only represent one of the parties in the deal, you want to track all the moving parts, inspections, approvals, funding, closing, occupancy, and any other critical dates for completion. You want to be the one who reminds others what they need to do and when they need to do it, even if it's already been given a copy of the contract or they've been notified of their responsibilities. Uh, emotions often drive home buying decisions, be they going in or getting out. In a shifted market, the decision to buy is complicated by external or subconscious factors such as negative press, the foreclosure reports, and the less informed opinions of friends and family. An understatement. Get ahead of the stuff. Proactive is better than reactive. The advantage always goes to the ones who keep the ones who keeps their heads up and anticipate where everything might go wrong. Your job is to keep everyone's eyes on the prize, a successful, completed, closed transaction. There are two timeless strategies that the best professionals use to stay on track and get to the finish line. Proactive prevention and early response.
Respond fast. Get ahead of it if you can. If you can't, do it fast. If anything can go wrong, it will. So take the Murphy out of the game and keep everyone's head in it. Bulletproofing strategies. Number one, proactive prevention with buyers, sellers, vendors, and co-ops. A, outcome framing. What do we want to achieve? B, setting expectations. What do we realistically need to consider? C, preparing alternatives. What will we do if? D, reassurance. We are on track ahead of the game and doing fine. Number two, early response to problems and issues. Constant communication. What's happening? How are you doing? B, inspecting expectations. Has it been done? What will you do now? C, problem solving. What do we need to do now? How can this get done? D, contract to close tracking. What is our progress? What's next? You must be the calmest person and the calming influence in the transaction. Proactive prevention. Outcome framing. What do we want to achieve? Setting expectations. What do we realistically need to consider? Preparing alternatives. What will we do if? Number four, reassurance we are on track ahead of the game and doing fine. No obstacle is too big if we have thought our way over, around, or under it. It's more about preparation, right? And, of course, using all this work for good, right? Sincere reassurance delivered confidently and proactively builds trust and peace of mind for the clients. And this would come in when you initially talk to them about their goals and what they're hoping to achieve, right? And what the carrot is. And that's your fiduciary responsibility to make sure they, you know, they get their carrot. And you may have to remind them of what the carrot is and deal with some objections. That is your job. And a shifted market, this word of mouth dissemination of your name and reputation is pure gold, right? There are very few things that left on their own get better. In fact, there's a scientific law for this truth. It's called entropy, which informally says anything left alone tends to fall apart. So early response, constant communication. What's happening? How are you doing? Number two, inspecting expectations. Has it been done? What will you do now? Number three, problem solving. What do we need to do now? How can this get done? Number four, Contract to close tracking. What is our progress? What's next? I once heard an agent say her motto was constant communication creates customer confidence. And I always say uncertainty kills deals. I always like to say it in fewer words. Boom. When it comes to the work of the vendors, and it's something I need to work on. When it comes to the work of the vendors to the transaction, accountability is the key. You must inspect what you expect. People just as he pointed out in this book, um, do better when they're watched. I do. You do. It's human nature, man. It's not just something wrong with somebody. It's just how humans operate. You may even engage your clients in the process, particularly if they are required to approve the final solution. People almost always support those plans and ideas they had a hand in creating. In the long term, your professional fail-safe systems establish you as a reliable, trustworthy, competent professional that gets things done, done right and on time. That kind of reputation means money in your pocket, a career worth having, and a business is not only growing, but absolutely worth owning. We do our deals heads down, but we save our deals heads up. Almost done. Successful people shift always, continuously, relentlessly. Hard times aren't easy, hence the name. But you know what? Easy times aren't easy either. Life is a continuous challenge. 
the problem-free market does not exist. So putting your head down and pretending otherwise is a waste of time. If you want to have fewer problems, I suggest you learn to become comfortable with being uncomfortable. Learn to shift. All right, is that it? I have a few more. Oh, got a little bit more. It's the real estate business. Downward shifts are more difficult on the front end. Upward shifts more difficult on the back end. So he's pointing out that regardless of the market you're in, you're, you have challenges, right? So stop being a crap baby about it. To successfully implement these 12 tactics, you must act your wage. This means you must think and act the wage you want before you earn it. Average is as average does. Good is as good does. And great is as great does. What you do is who you become. And he talks about time blocking it, all right? One of the greatest greatest myths is that you succeed your way to success, and this isn't true. In fact, just the opposite is true. You fail your way to success. Everyone fails. The ones who succeed are the ones who keep going. The ones who fail are the ones who don't. When you succeed, you do. When you succeed, you do an end zone dance and celebrate. When you lose, you seek to find out what happened and learn from your mistake and push forward. Failing at something isn't failing. It's learning what didn't work and growing from experience. Also, time tends to reward effort and resilience. Be patient. And also, success never comes to the chosen few, but the few who choose. These can be the worst of times. These can be the best of times. You get to choose. And that is the end of the shift. Next week, we're going to review the whole book. Everything that I highlighted, I recommend you do the same, right? Because, you know, you might not have highlighted the same things I highlighted. That's the point. That is entirely the point. Um, And we're going to take the time to read something and study it. We should learn from it too, right? And um, if you haven't already, hook a brother up, man. Go on iTunes, rate and review. I really appreciate it. It really does help. Keep sharing this across social media. Let's grow the listeners. We're at about a thousand weekly listeners. We're really behind schedule. I'd like to be at five thousand for, um, you know, we have about six more months to do it. Um, I'd like to be at about uh, five thousand weekly listeners in the next six months. So I'm going to need a lot of your help to do it. I hope I'm providing value. If you don't feel like leaving a review and you and you're not sharing, I want you to take a moment right now and realize if you have a good reason why. Maybe I'm I could be doing a better job. If you can reach out and let me know. Um, what I can do better or how I can do it. I may or may not take your advice because I may or may not agree, but I'd like to know if you're not, if you haven't left a review on iTunes and you don't share, I would like to know. And if you find yourself in a situation where you can't explain why you haven't, do me a favor and just go and do it now. Take less than five minutes. It really helps out. If you enjoy the podcast, all right? If you don't, don't do that, all right? If you have any comments, questions, suggestions, go to renegadedetroit.com. If you're interested in attending any of the local meetups, go to meetup.com forward slash Renegade Detroit Investors or facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club. You can hit me up on Twitter and Instagram at Jeremy Burgess. And of course, you can always go to youtube.com forward slash user forward slash Detroit Wholesalers. And as I wrap up this podcast, I do want to take a moment to encourage you to take the steps you need to become financially independent. I know I say this every week. I mean this shit, man. I know the distractions, bad starts, mistakes, poisonous people. I get it. Happened to me, right? Pick some goals, though. I don't care how small they are. Stick with them. Don't give up. 
Do something every day that gets you closer to your goals, even if it's one step. And I want to thank you for listening, and I want to let you know that I really appreciate your attention. I know you can be doing lots of other things. And until the next podcast, crush it.